Hello, hello. Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. It's good to be back, Nando. Great to be back. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling fresh. I'm feeling renewed. Feeling Ooh, excited feeling for today. Feeling fresh, like very that. fresh. Uh, feeling renewed. Uh, feeling excited for today's show. We got brother Dr. Cornell West. Yep, I'm so excited. I mean, so it's a pre-taped interview. Um, we're going to yep. toss to it after we do our decode segment. So if you see us looking different, dressed differently, it's a pre-taped um, interview. But I promise you, you're going to love it. Um, I think we asked some pretty good questions in regard to. You know, the left wing strategy, um, how to keep fighting, even though we're experiencing some pretty dire times, uh, things look bleak. Uh, but he always has this ability to kind of um, pump energy into you, you know, and, and get you to yeah. like just see the bigger picture and think strategically about how to move forward, which is difficult to do, really. But he's great. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's out there stumping for Nina Turner today. Um, I saw some videos that came out of that, um, you know, Nina Turner's elections on Tuesday. Um, we wish her luck. Hopefully she can beat back the Democratic Party's establishment uh, candidate who is just well-funded, you know, by like all the most awful people in the world, endorsed by Hillary Clinton, all that stuff. So, you know, at least, they, at least she's got Cornell West in, in her corner. Yeah, Cornell West, Bernie Sanders, AOC, you know, there are some pretty big name uh, progressives out there campaigning on her behalf. So fingers crossed, uh, corporate Democrats have poured a lot of money into the corporate Democrat candidates race. Um, so that's Chantel Brown. And she's awful. She's so awful that, you know, during a recent rally <laughs> speech, she needed a clap track uh, to make it appear as though, you know, there was a big audience that was supportive of her message. And by the way, her message was mostly, I'm able to reach across the aisle as if yeah. Democratic voters are interested in playing patty cakes with corporate Republicans. It's just anyway. So we'll see how that all um, plays out. Uh, but for the purposes of our show, Nando, why don't we um, start off by discussing uh, two topics? Uh, the topic that I wanted to talk about this morning is, uh, or afternoon, depending on where you are in the country yeah. or the planet, um, is uh, a laboratory, a, a pharmaceutical laboratory that makes generic drugs. It's actually um, shipping its jobs over to a different country. And this is relevant because it shows you just how the financial interests of our politicians pay, play a huge role in the decisions they make or whether or not they intervene on certain issues, right? So let's let's give you the details on that. So there's a critical plant that manufactures critical generic drugs in the state of West Virginia. Of course, that's the state where Joe Manchin happens to be a senator. And uh, they are deciding to move their operations abroad, threatening America's generic drug supply, which is something we should be very thoughtful about considering uh, the fragility of our supply chains, what we experienced during coronavirus, but it's also outsourcing thousands of unionized jobs. So uh, Vanity Fair did an excellent job with this piece. I highly recommend you guys check it out and read the entirety of it. It has all these details and tidbits that we can't get into uh, for the purposes of this show right now. But uh, they write that Mylan Laboratories has made 61 drug products, including a substantial portion of the world's supply of a critical thyroid medicine. It's 1,431 highly trained workers. That includes analytical chemists, industrial engineers, and senior janitors among them are represented by the Steelworkers Union. All are slated to be laid off by the month's end, meaning 
literally today. It's the last day of July. And uh, just to give you a sense of how much downsizing had already happened with this laboratory, at its height back in 2016, the Morgantown manufacturing site employed more than 3,700 full-time employees and made more than 1,400 drug products, a scale that dwarfs most American drug manufacturing sites, according to FDA records. And so when the Steelworkers Union approached Joe Manchin, they're trying to get in touch with him. They're like, look, Joe Manchin says he cares about unionized jobs. He says he cares about jobs in the state of West Virginia most of all. So we just need to get a meeting with him. We need to talk mm. with him. And I'm sure he'll mm. intervene. Except the opposite happened. They get in touch with him. He's on the Senate floor. He gives them a brief 10-minute conversation over the phone. And here's what he says to them. Sorry about your luck. It sounds like they've reached a corporate decision there's very mm. little I can do. There's Nothing very to be done. Do. Nothing, to, Nothing be done. to be done. No. Be done. I mean, right I now he's like, you know, puffing up his chest and walking around the Senate floor like he's the actual president of the United States. He understands the kind of power he has. But when it comes to this laboratory, when it comes to these jobs in West Virginia, he's not doing anything. Why? Well, this laboratory recently um, did a merger. And in the process of that merger... His daughter, who was an executive at Milan, mm. receives a $30.8 million golden parachute, and her buddies are still working at Milan <laughs> as executives. So let's not stir the pot. You know, my daughter's making a buck off this, and we yeah. don't want to upset anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just one of those things in America, the political system is not geared toward uh protecting jobs or anything like that i mean it's just fully um dedicated to protecting corporate profits even if that means decimating uh local jobs i mean politicians often you know are, are stressed a lot about like jobs in their state and things like that and like there is this the, the whole story of chuck schumer you know trying to um and you know give massive subsidies to uh you know like microchip manufacturers to bring jobs to his state or whatever but like when push comes to shove when push comes to shove they will never do it in a way that threatens corporate profits they'll do it by um you know offering these like insane tax breaks and things like that like just giving them more money to like beg them to 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 stay in the state and then often they don't anyway i mean but there are you know it's the government they can do things like there there are yep. things to be done there is there is industrial policy to be done there they can they can start their own uh uh you know they can they can take over factories they can they can force companies to stay here they can, there's a million things that, that that can that they can do but there's this kind of learned helplessness from our political class um, that is just like, you know, what, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? We're just the government. We can't intervene in the economy. Like that'd be crazy. We would never intervene in the economy. And then in the case of Manchin, obviously there's this comical, just kind of just comical uh, conflict of interest with his daughter making tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it's just, it's a perfect microcosm of what our government is vis-a-vis um, -vis totally. its role in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joe Manchin is, like a walking sign for everything that's wrong in, in our federal government, right? Because yeah. the, he's, a, he's a walking conflict of interest because yeah. this is just one of those conflicts of interest. Another conflict of interest is his personal investment in a hotel chain in his own <laughs> state, which is why he didn't want to increase uh, the federal minimum wage. That would actually hurt his bottom line. Uh, then we found out recently that he's receiving nearly a half a million dollars a year off of his investments in dirty coal in the state of West Virginia. Like, 
he is literally financially incentivized to work against us. Doesn't matter if he's a Democrat, yeah. doesn't matter if he's a Republican. And so, like, when I take a step back and I think about what are the solutions, right? Because, you know, we're about to talk about the moratori- eviction moratorium ending. And you look at the federal government and it's just dog crap. It's absolute garbage. I mean, what we're seeing in in the way that they're handling the infrastructure bill, in the way that they've uh, responded to the economic uh, concerns of people who are still laid off, still don't have their jobs and are about to get evicted. I mean, it's just it shows you how broken um, that system is. And Democrats are unwilling to use the tools in their toolbox that honestly... As much as I can't stand the guy, Donald Trump had no problem using obscure rules and provisions to get what he wants. Democrats aren't willing to do it. Of course not. And you bring up the the eviction moratorium, which which just expired. And, you know, aside from the human catastrophe that that is, right, millions of people potentially evicted in in the coming months, you know, all these people are behind on their rent. There's been no rental assistance. There's just been this eviction moratorium, which, like, is the absolute bare minimum thing would you know to to be done in a, in a case like the the coronavirus pandemic but if you zoom out from a political level from a political standpoint you know a republican that runs in the 2022 election can easily say when we were in power we protected you from getting evicted and then the democrats got in power and they let you get evicted <laughs> and, you know like and they would be correct about that like they would be 100% correct about that when we control the government with Trump and we control the Senate and the House we passed an eviction moratorium when the democrats got in there they took it away yeah and what what's no, the argument against absolutely that absolutely right i mean like the accurate argument would be but i mean it's a weak argument but the accurate argument would be yeah you guys had that moratorium but you let blackrock evict hundreds of people anyway you didn't actually enforce the moratorium um and by the way those evictions continued during Biden's administration as well. That's why it's an incredibly weak argument. But in terms of messaging, we already know what the story is. We know that the Democratic Party really fails in aggressive messaging, especially when Republicans tend to have a point. And in this case, they absolutely do have a point. What what is amazing to me is that everything in the federal government is so overpowered by corporate donors that Democrats can't even see straight. They can't even see the damage they're doing to their own political careers because they're following along with what the corporate donors want. I mean, these landlords, corporate landlords, they don't want the moratorium to continue. I mean, BlackRock just snatched up a bunch of single family homes. They want to return on that investment. They want to be able to evict the people who are unable to pay their rent. And so I have no doubt that these are the kinds of conversations that are taking place behind closed doors. I mean, this is not the United States of America. This is uh, the Chamber of Commerce, (laughs) you know, the United States of Chamber of Commerce. Like, that's what this is at this point. And that's the problem. Um, And it it doesn't matter if uh, Democrats are, you know, kicking their own asses and hurting their own political futures. They're just going to keep doing this. And it's really, it's pathetic. Yeah, I mean, and it just goes to show, I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the the Speaker, of, uh, the Speaker of the House, the leader of the Democrats in Congress, um, you know, the nominal kind of left, left of center party in the United States, um, faced with this kind of absolute human catastrophe that's that's uncommon, that, that's, that's, that's coming, you know, I think there's as many as 6 million people that are behind on their rent. Um, there's no rental assistance coming. Um, 
with landlords able to evict these people, um, there's nothing stopping them from doing it. Um, and she didn't even know about it. I mean, Kale, can you pull up the, the tweet? Um, she goes, Pelosi says part of the problem was last minute notice from White House about the need to handle legislatively. Really, we only learned about this yesterday. Not really enough time to socialize it within our caucus to build the consensus necessary. Okay. She just had no idea. No idea that this was coming. You know, nothing to be, you know, oh, she needs to be told. You like, know why? It's not like that there was like media coverage of this. Of course there was. There's been reports. There's been like, you know, we knew the deadline. The deadline was put into the legislation in the first place. Um, but they, they forgot about it or they didn't know about it or they didn't care about it or they just don't. They don't know anyone who's at risk, you know, in their own social lives uh, because all these totally. people are rich. Um, and right. it's just to them, it's an abstraction, not a reality. Exactly. I mean, there's the disconnect in terms of like the insane wealth that members of Congress are experiencing right now, while the majority of Americans are struggling economically. But also, I mean, the system is set up in a way to ensure that they're able to keep doing what they're doing, right? Like, I'm going to keep repeating this. The fact that they're able to be invested in individual stocks. I want to know how many members of Congress, both (laughs) Democrats and Republicans, are personally, financially invested in corporate landlords, right? I mean, these are publicly traded corporations. Are they invested in them? And I I would be shocked if they weren't. So, like, that's what I'm talking about when I say conflict of interest. They're looking out for their financial interests, And actually legislating on our behalf, representing the best interests of the American people goes against their own profit motive. That's that's the problem. The system is set up this way. Uh, It's very bleak. It's very bleak. I know. um, I know. Should should we read some books (laughs) to to help ease the pain? To help ease the pain? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, if you want to ease the pain, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. For as long as you are a subscriber, all memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in August, you'll get these four books. A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by... Gio Mar, Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons in the Politics of Truth by Matthew Fuller and Ayal Wiseman, The Age of Precarity, Endless Crisis as an Art of Government by Dario Gentili, and a new edition of The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State by friend of the show, Frederick Engels, with a new introduction by Jennifer Doyle. So, yeah. You know what? I mean, reading The Age of Precarity... We'll definitely yeah. use the pain. Like, definitely check that out. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, that'll All make right. you feel better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but, you know, understanding, like, the thing that I like is reading about movements that have worked, right? And and it's it gives you at least a bit of a playbook to, to understand how to proceed forward. I mean, I try yeah. to think of it that way, but it's still... Things are tough. Things are definitely tough. All right. I'm looking for my decode segment, and for some reason, I'm not seeing it. Give me one mm. second. Yeah. Not Don't good. Not you? good. Not very not good. No, no, no. I have, like, I didn't print out, like, the first page, which is a bit of a disaster. Oh, no. I got it. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> got it. I'm ready. Alrighty. Let's do it. All right. So um, let's have some fun. Let's go to a music festival. So, Hell, yeah. 
As we speak, Chicago is hosting Lollapalooza, a massive music festival, despite the fact that, unfortunately, new cases of coronavirus are, in fact, spreading and spiking. The city's largest music festival is being held at full capacity from July 29th to August 1st. It comes at a time when the city is seeing its average daily number of new coronavirus cases more than double in a matter of weeks. Now, for the purposes of this Decode segment, I'm not going to get into how frustrating the spread of the Delta variant is, uh, but it is important to at least consider why a massive music festival will be held or is being held as the numbers of new cases is spiking. And it's because of, of course, the profit motive behind these music festivals. And so that got me thinking about the profit motive, but more importantly, something that's kind of been whitewashed in the media, the the notion of millennials wanting to avoid spending money on things in order to spend their limited resources on experiences. And the fact of the matter is, it's part of this economy that economists, capitalists have been uh, talking about for decades now. It's known as the experience economy. And when you really hone in on what makes the experience economy succeed and how it allows for capitalists to control our amusement, our entertainment, you know, the more pleasurable parts in our lives, it can get incredibly infuriating because we should be able to control what we do or how we enjoy our free time. But when it comes to music festivals, as fun as they might seem, mm, there have been some pretty massive hiccups. So, in fact, that human desire for something um, that's been exploited and commodified by capitalists for profit is what's referred to as the experience economy. Here's, Here's a little more about it. In the past 20 years, the Western world has shifted from buying things to buying these kinds of things. In other words, experiences. My name is Joe Pine. And I'm going to tell you all about the experience economy. Joe has written a book called, well, The Experience Economy. Well, what's happened is we've gone from an agrarian economy based off commodities through an industrial economy based off goods to a service economy. And today we're in an experience economy. What experiences really do is that they engage everyone inside of them. And it's all designed to create this unique communal experience. Living in the digital age that we are now, there's more need than ever for people to connect. That's what festivals do the best. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Because when you really take a step back and you look at what capitalism uh, supports or endorses, which is individualism uh, while shunning collectivism, then they try to find ways to exploit the isolation or the alienation that we might feel as a result of the capitalist system, right? And to be sure, we were already feeling that alienation, that isolation, that atomized way of living prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic has only exacerbated that. So it's completely understandable that humans have this need, this desire for community. Those are the experiences that they crave. And it's only gotten worse, or at least that that urge has only become 
um, more pronounced in people's lives during coronavirus-related shutdowns and social distancing. Now, again, capitalism celebrates individualism while shunning collectivism. Workers feel alienation from other people because they're either seen as their competitors for scarce resources and wages, and it's also very easy for people to be alienated from others when they're constantly working and have very little time for rest or for pleasure or for communicating or connecting with others. In other words, capitalism leads to the alienation of workers, and then it finds ways to benefit from it and profit from it by offering so-called experiences. Now, the Harvard Business Review was already advising businesses on how to exploit alienated people looking for more meaning in their lives, looking for more community in their lives. In fact, they wrote, quote, an experience occurs when a company intentionally uses services as the stage and goods as props to engage individual customers in a way that creates a memorable event. Commodities are fungible, goods tangible, services intangible, and experiences memorable. Mm -mm -mm. But do we really want the capitalist class to decide which experiences in our lives are memorable? Do we want them to tailor uh, certain experiences uh, for us uh, to experience a sense of community. Now, music festivals are actually a great example of what the Harvard Business Review had written about because the music is merely a prop. The experience, large masses of people letting loose together is the experience. A 10-year British audience survey revealed that headline acts are a deciding factor for only 8% of festival goers. But 53% said the overall experience is the reason they bought their ticket. We asked these festival goers why they're here. A lineup will drag me in, but when I'm here, sometimes I don't even see any music. I'll be honest, I don't know any of the friggin' music. Uh, it's nothing to do with the music, it's all atmosphere. Nothing hmm. to do with the music, it's all atmosphere. And listen, that's fine, but let's understand what that atmosphere is about. It's about a sense of togetherness, about celebrating something together with your fellow humans, something that we're not able to do on a day-to-day basis. Now, look, a good case study is actually Woodstock. Uh, The story of Woodstock in the summer of 1969, of course, has uh, been rewritten and romanticized, which I didn't really know about until fairly recently. That myth was then capitalized in the 1990s when the same men behind the original Woodstock uh, decided to create subsequent uh, Woodstocks in 1999 and, by the way, 1994, which for the most part went off without a hitch. But we should focus a little bit on the 1999 Woodstock because it was a disaster. Now, Woodstock 99 ended in riots as attendees whipped up Uh, whipped up by three days of anarchy-fueled music, burned the fairgrounds. 44 were arrested. There were 10 reported sexual assaults, but a cursory glance at the footage, male attendees groping topless women with glee, assures there were many more. In fact, there's a fantastic documentary about this uh, called Woodstock 99 on HBO. It's relatively new, and I highly recommend it. The facilities collapsed under the weight of 200,000 visitors, over 1,200 were treated for medical conditions. Three people actually died. Now, Woodstock 99 was riddled with the failures of capitalism, from its deceptive marketing to its price gouging. 
The marketing for Woodstock 99, again, relied on the romanticism and revised history of the original Woodstock in 1969. Although the concert became free when an expected crowd of 200,000 grew half a million strong, it was actually conceived as a business proposition. The 1969 Woodstock Music Festival was the brainchild of four men, all aged 27 or younger, looking for an investment opportunity. John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Artie Cornfield, and Michael Lang. Lang had organized a successful Miami Music Festival in 1968, and Cornfield was the youngest vice president at Capitol Records. Roberts and Rosenman were New York entrepreneurs involved in building a Manhattan recording studio. So we're talking about businessmen looking to put together a music festival for profit. But things didn't really work out the way that they intended. And as a result, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people who were able, and I think this is a good thing, to enjoy the music festival for free. But here's the problem. It wasn't really a feel-good time in a lot of cases, and this next video will explain why. As one official pointed out, with 300,000 people, you are not dealing with just a crowd, but virtually a city. And as a city, it had city problems. One youngster died of a suspected overdose of heroin. 80 others were arrested on drug charges. Another boy killed when the driver of a tractor failed to see him inside a sleeping bag. What happened at White Lake this weekend may have been more than an uncontrolled outpouring of hip young people, struggling as they did to survive. First, the 20-mile traffic jams, five-mile hikes, then the intense heat and sudden rain, the thirst and hunger from the shortage of water and food, just for the opportunity to spend a few days in the country getting stoned on their drugs and grooving on the music. And grooving on the music. I love I love that news report. It was actually a pretty fair news report um, by CBS uh, back in 1969, which you can check out on YouTube, and I highly recommend it. Now, the entrepreneurs behind the original Woodstock happened to be the exact same guys looking to make a buck off music festivals and merchandising today. Woodstock Ventures, the firm that oversees the licensing and intellectual property related to the Woodstock Festival, is still run by the original producers of the event. And for several decades now, that one that once ragtag group of hippies has evolved into, if they weren't already, good businessmen with savvy instincts. That's an older Reuters piece. And to be clear, their instincts ain't so savvy, especially when you're putting festivals together with the very clear financial interest. They want to make a profit off of these events. And as we know, the best way to make a profit is to minimize costs and maximize the profits. So one can understand why they would want to rewrite history or the history of Woodstock, because Woodstock Ventures also happens to be the same group of guys behind Woodstock 94 and 99. So they made a bunch of dumb decisions with Woodstock 99 by choosing a military base in the middle of the summer as the venue for the event. Take a look. Woodstock 99 was held on Griffiths Air Force Base. Constructed in the 1940s, the base was used for military aircraft maintenance. There were some areas of turf, but for the most part, Woodstock 99 happened on 1,100 acres of airplane runways. The grounds were so expansive, visitors had to travel a mile and a half between two main stages. This is how Rolling Stone journalist Rob Sheffield described the scene. It was a few miles of asphalt surrounded by barbed wire. 
there were a few patches of grass. But for instance, if you were looking for some grass to lie down on, you're not going to lie under a tree or on a hillside. You're not going to see any flowers. It was a place that was designed to house jet fighters. Kevin Wasserman, the Offspring's lead guitarist, you know him as Noodles, was even more critical of the locale. We played this festival in Nuremberg at an old Third Reich Park. So I've played a venue that was literally built by Hitler that was more <laughs> hospitable than that Air Force base was. But the event's organizers were giddy once they secured that military base as the venue for, ironically, Woodstock 99, right? Like, like, like let that irony sink in for a second. Why were they so giddy about it? Well, if you're doing this music festival on a military base, then you have this infrastructure at your disposal that can prevent people from sneaking into the concert for free. They weren't going to let that original mistake of Woodstock, you know, at 69 happen again. They wanted to ensure that everyone who was there paid the ticket to be there. And so, uh, of course, you're dealing with asphalt in the middle of summer in Rome, New York. Temperatures are extremely high at 100 degrees, and asphalt increases the ground temperature. People were incredibly hot and grumpy as a result. And by the way, speaking of tickets, tickets for Woodstock 99, remember, this is 1999, sold for $150 and ballooned to $180 on the weekend. A single serving of pizza, meaning a slice of pizza, was $12. And guess what? The situation wasn't any better when it came to bottled water. Water sold for $4 a bottle. Unfortunately, free tap water was incredibly hard to come by as well. Imagine around a quarter of a million people trapped in a concrete pen surrounded by barbed wire. Now imagine shutting off that population's water supply. Unless you were working the festival, that was your life for four straight days. Of course, festival attendees had two choices. They could either buy a 12-ounce bottle of water for $4, $6.20 if you adjust for inflation, or stand in line for free faucet water from spigots that were sparsely located up to a half mile away from the main stages. The wait in these lines took hours. Eventually, people got frustrated by their shabby water conditions and started destroying the water spigots, their only free source of water. So imagine being in that environment, right? The conditions on the ground, you're hot, you're dehydrated, you're being price gouged left and right when it comes to sustenance and hydration. And when violence finally did break out, um, you know, at this concert or this, this music festival, um, some concert goers said the violence was directed at the high prices promoters charge for food, water, and merchandise, which is completely understandable. I mean, I'm not recommending violence, but when violence breaks out in response to that price gouging, in response to the horrible conditions on the ground, organizers should probably take a little responsibility for it. Now, believe it or not, it actually gets worse. The organizers of the festival skimped on security and also hired inexperienced randos who walked off on the job when things started to get a little sketchy. So even though the crowd wildly outnumbered the law enforcement presence, roughly 500 New York state troopers plus local uh, PD, the authorities were supposed to have a little more support courtesy of volunteer security recruited from New York City. Volunteer meaning unpaid. However, many of those volunteers unceremoniously walked off the job by wandering off into the audience, leaving the police severely shorthanded when things got hmm. out of hand. So these uh, event organizers 
who are putting this whole thing together for profit wanted to cut costs by refusing to hire professional security or refusing to pay actual state troopers uh, or enough of those state troopers to do the job appropriately. They wanted to rely on free labor, and they paid the price for that. The organizers also didn't invest enough on pumping out porta-potties, which is an incredibly uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's it's Mm -hmm. relevant. So there were at least 2,500 portable toilets acquired for Woodstock 99, but they began to overflow by the second day. The excess waste combined with dirt and spigot water to create a bacteria-infested cesspool that stretched the length of the grounds. But you know what? You think you think that's bad? It gets worse. It gets worse. So kids were complaining that sewage from overflowing toilets was going into their tents. They were sleeping in it. They couldn't believe that was what they were expected to live with. By the end of the festival, at least 1,200 tons of solid waste and half a million gallons of liquid waste were produced by concert goers. In fact, if you look at photos of the event, you'll see people who didn't realize that the mud wasn't really mud. It was raw sewage, just completely covered in that mud, covered in that raw sewage. I can't even imagine what that smelled like. Now, the conditions on the ground were miserable. People were hot. They were dehydrated. They were covered in literal shit. And uh, the lineup of mostly new metal music also didn't help to calm the furious festival goers. The reboot of Woodstock for an audience mostly born after the original festival in 1969 was a proto-fire meltdown of grotesque American excess, a panoply of late 90s nonsense, Kid Rock strolling on stage in a white fur coat, Limp Bizkit as a main draw, mostly young white Uh, male Gen Xers paying to see new metal acts in a poorly managed swamp of filth. So they rioted. Crowds are blowing up CO2 tanks from the tractor trailers. They got uh, troops in there with riot gear. They're forcing everybody out. Mass chaos. I mean, a lot of people, I think, are frustrated at the whole profit thing of this, but there's a different way to, to show it. So one of the things that happened uh, in the aftermath of this disastrous music festival was the organizers, uh, the investors, the very people who put this literal shit show together, tried to blame the performers for the riot. I mean, the music, to be sure, um, was, it's new metal music. I mean, it is what it is. But they hired people like Limbiscuit to do what Limbiscuit does, right? They knew what his music was about. They knew what his performances looked like. And they tried to pass the blame on Limbiscuit and his performance for what started the rioting. No, no. And this is true of other instances where something goes wrong in a company, where something goes wrong in a bank, like Wells Fargo, for instance. The workers are the scapegoats, not the investors, not the executives. It's the workers. And in this case, regardless of how you feel about the performers, regardless of how you feel about Limp Bizkit or his music, he's a worker in this case. He is working this music festival. 
And the capitalists behind it decide to try to throw him under the bus because they didn't want to take any blame for all of the horrible decisions they made all around in organizing this, this event. And really, this isn't just about Woodstock 99. It isn't about introducing more regulation to ensure that all of the issues that we see in this particular event are prevented in the future. Really, what we need to do is think about how workers can take control of not just their working conditions, but of their lives. Because if workers had a seat at the table or if workers had control and power over their working conditions, then they wouldn't see others as competition for scarce resources. They wouldn't be as alienated as we are now from everything, including the work we do, including alienation from nature, because under a capitalist system, nature is just seen as something to exploit and extract natural resources from, right? We would see the world differently because there would be more to our lives than just producing profit for our bosses. And we would have more control over how much free time we have and what we do with that free time. We wouldn't have to rely on these music festivals or any other event that's put together by people who have a profit motive in order to feel connection to others. We would have the ability to, you know, put some time aside to learn a musical instrument and maybe engage in a jam session if that's what we're interested in. So we can actually enjoy the music uh, without having corporate control of that experience. And so, yes, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be super negative toward some of these events that you guys might actually be in favor of. And that's totally fine. But what I am arguing is, is that we need to have more control over our free time, how we use that free time, and not allow for others to uh, cater to us in a way that might seem like it's tailored to our needs or our concerns. But more importantly, um, we need to have more control so people with a profit motive aren't making those decisions for us. And of course, even when it comes to the perfectly fine looking music festivals, they cost a lot of money to go to. What does that say for people who can't afford to go to these events? What does that say for people who want to have a sense of community but literally can't afford to do it uh, because they're underpaid due to the decisions that their bosses make? So the, the real solution here, Nando, as you know, is for workers to have more control over their workplaces and their lives. Well, I, you know, I think the real solution is just because I, I, I've just your, your segment moved me because it was a socialist defense of Limp Bizkit, you know, and I will um, I will admit to uh, when I was a young lad at 14 in 1999, I, I had the Limp Bizkit album. I had the album. I, you know, I, I listened to it, you know, and now I feel better about myself because I recognize that Fred Durst singer of Limp Bizkit is a worker and uh, actually, you know, he deserves all the protections uh, that every other worker uh, deserves. Uh, so I want to thank you for that because um, I think now the solution should be to make him the, um, you know, the vice premier of the Politburo uh, of the new workers, uh, of the new worker state. I didn't say all that. I didn't say okay. all that. But, you know, but it is kind of funny how it's like, you know, they... They made all these decisions to price gouge the hell out of people, hold this event at a military base in scorching temperatures. And then it's like, no, it's Limp Bizkit's fault that they rioted. It's Limp Bizkit. Come on. Yeah. 
No, I mean it's I I haven't seen the documentary yet, but I remember that festival well. Like I remember I remember that time really well. I was, you know, I was I was kind of like really into music throughout the 90s. I remember I, I remember Woodstock 94 really well, which was also kind of a mess and there was like a huge mudslide and there was like a whole issue with Green Day. I don't, it was like a whole thing also. And they just kind of tried to recapture the magic of Woodstock 60 Woodstock 1969, which was a completely different era uh both you know, politically, but also it was before kind of neoliberalism turned everything into like a profit machine, um, you know, every, like literally every aspect of society. Um, and by 1999, when neoliberalism was at its absolute peak in terms of uh, its hegemony, um, they just do like this just grotesque profit grab and it backfires like right in their face. I find it to be kind of poetic in a way. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, they were planning on doing another one of these Woodstock festivals in, um, they announced it in uh, 2019. So I think it was supposed to be held in 2020. It didn't work out. And I don't know, I guess it's one of the silver linings to uh, the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you enjoy going to music festivals in general? The last time I went to a music festival was in 2014. I did go to Coachella and I have to admit I had the time of my life. I did. Okay, well, there you Um, go. So it's not it's not like, oh, I'm not condemning music festivals. Yeah. I just think that when you allow people with a profit motive to control everything about it, um, it's if it started off good, it's easy for it to devolve. And to yeah. be short, Coachella has devolved quite a bit. I mean, that's why yeah. the last time I went was in 2013 or 2014. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... It's it's amazing how expensive they are. It's amazing how they they profit like at every single turn. You know, there's you know the, the case of the water. I mean, this happens uh, in like nightclubs as well, where like you know everyone's like uh, hopped up on ecstasy and they get uh, dry mouth, and then they just like rack up the they jack up the prices of the water bottles. And in Spain, actually, like back in the day in the '90s, they used to turn off the the water in the bathrooms, like in the in oh the in the sinks. They don't do that anymore because there was like some sort of like intervention from the government. But they used to like at these big nightclubs, they would turn off the water in order to force you to buy these like insanely uh, expensive bottles of water when you're like hopped up on e uh, and you're and you got all the all the dry mouth. So yeah, that's I mean, insane. They, that's I mean, yeah. it shows you though. Like they don't they don't they know that you can die. They know that people are hopped up on e. Right? They yeah. know that people can literally die if they don't have access to water. And they're yeah. like, no, we got we got to make money off of it. We got to exploit. Yeah the possibility of these people dying to make a buck no absolutely well yeah all righty well uh should i get to my uh segment yes tell me what the fbi's been up to nando well a good rule of thumb emma anna is that you should not trust the fbi do not trust the fbi ever now, 2020 was a pretty tumultuous year, to say the least. There was, of course, the coronavirus pandemic that froze the global economy for about a year. There was the uprising after the murder of George Floyd, one of the largest mass protests in American history. And then, of course, there was the rise of right-wing militia violence, which culminated with the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Now, one of the most shocking examples of what is now being called domestic terrorism was when a group of militiamen were arrested in Michigan for allegedly trying to kidnap the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, after she implemented lockdowns in her state. We're going to begin tonight with that alleged terror plot and the chilling plan. The FBI says it stopped before it could be carried out. A plan to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and then what they were planning to do to her. Thirteen suspects arrested, including seven alleged members of a right-wing militia group. 
the FBI and state authorities conducting a series of raids in Michigan. Those 13 suspects taken into custody, seven of them alleged members of that right-wing militia group. Governor Whitmer has been the target of protests since last spring over restrictions aimed to stop the spread of COVID amid one of the early outbreaks. Michigan, of course, a hot spot at the time. Now, that came in October of 2020, just a few months after armed right-wing protesters entered the Michigan State Capitol and occupied it. Lawmakers in Michigan are taking extra precautions today after the Capitol building was overrun by protesters, some of whom were armed with semi-automatic weapons. Now, these two events, understandably, freaked people out. But in the months since the arrests, information has come to light that casts serious doubt on the narrative that came out of the FBI and the media. The attorney for at least one of the defendants is alleging that the FBI actually entrapped these men, encouraging and helping them to hatch this conspiracy all along the way. Members of a group called the Wolverine Watchmen, they were spotted at anti-lockdown protests at Michigan's Capitol last year, now looking at felony charges of conspiracy to kidnap. But a motion recently filed by defendant Caleb Franks is raising questions around the case. It alleges that the government was working with 12 different confidential sources within the group. His attorney now requesting all information on those informants from the government to better prepare for trial. Now, of course, the defense attorney is going to try anything to get his client off. But a deeply reported investigation by BuzzFeed News that came out this week seems to corroborate the narrative. It writes, quote, an examination of the case by BuzzFeed News also reveals that some of these informants acting under the direction of the FBI played a far larger role than has previously been reported. Working in secret, they did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of the suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises serious questions as to whether there would have been there would have even been a conspiracy without them. The recent filing also outlines potentially problematic relationships between confidential informants and the FBI, saying one has a, quote, decades long history of acting as a professional snitch for the government while pointing out that another received about $54,000 for his cooperation and a third received an envelope with $2,500 inside. Now, the fact that there were almost as many federal informants, 12, as men arrested in this whole affair, 13, certainly raises a few eyebrows, especially when you start to read about the, the informant's role within the whole plot. According to BuzzFeed's report, Quote, a longtime government informant from Wisconsin, for example, helped organize a series of meetings around the country where many of the alleged plotters first met one another and the earliest notions of the plan took root, some of those people say. The Wisconsin informant even paid for some hotel rooms and food as an incentive to get people to come. Then he writes, the Iraq war vet, another informant named Dan, for his part, became so deeply enmeshed in a Michigan militant group that he rose to become its second in command, encouraging members to collaborate with other potential suspects and paying for their transportation to meetings. He prodded the alleged mastermind of the kidnapping plot to advance his plan and then baited the trap that led to the arrest. Now, one of the key parts of the conspiracy was a plan to blow up a bridge in order to prevent law enforcement from reaching the men after they kidnapped the governor. 
Now, according to BuzzFeed, the man who'd advised them on where to put the explosives and offered to get them as much as the, ta- as much as the task would require was an undercover FBI agent. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, come on, Nando, this is ridiculous. The FBI could never pull this kind of thing off. These were clearly very bad dudes, and they got what they deserved. Thing is, the FBI has a long history of this exact type of behavior. When this whole story broke back in October of 2020, Branko Marcidic at at Jacobin published a piece urging people not to buy the media and the FBI's narrative. He wrote a headline that read, we shouldn't trust the FBI's narrative on the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping scheme. And then he wrote a subhead that wrote, The details of the kidnapping plot targeting Michigan government, Governor Gretchen Whitmer are disturbing and show the real danger of the far right. But given the FBI's very recent history of using undercover informants as provocateurs to push people into planning terror plots that otherwise would not have would never have happened, we should examine its narrative closely. Bronco's main point in the piece is that this all seemed a little too perfect. And he went on to outline several examples of the FBI's, let's say, overzealous prosecution of domestic terrorists, which in the wake of 9-11 were mostly Muslim men who were encouraged to declare loyalty to groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS by the FBI and then arrested for it. One particularly shocking example was the case of Peyton Pruitt, who actually was not Muslim, but was arrested by the FBI for allegedly declaring fealty to ISIS online, despite the fact that he was intellectually disabled. Peyton Pruitt was arrested last November. He was charged with soliciting support for a terrorist act after staff at a school where Peyton lived noticed some suspect behavior. Peyton had bought a book about ISIS, watched a documentary about ISIS, and communicated with people who appeared to be affiliated with ISIS on social media. Tony Pruitt says all of these things are true. However... This whole thing, in in my opinion, and as well as I know Peyton, was was like a video game. Uh, I've spoken to him several times about it, and he understands that he did wrong, but his intentions were not to ever hurt anyone. See, Peyton Pruitt is intellectually disabled. He has autism, and he's mentally retarded with ADD. This is a copy of one of Peyton's achievement assessments from earlier this year. It shows he has the cognitive ability of an eight-year-old even though he's 19. The pain for me was seeing and trying to understand what his mind is going through as an eight-year-old being handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. Now, the FBI questioned Peyton for hours, encouraging encouraging him to forego his right to an attorney, even though he didn't understand what the concept of an attorney even was. Peyton Pruitt was eventually released, but only after spending nearly a year in prison. And another case that was particularly instructive and more similar to what happened in Michigan was the case of the so-called Liberty City 7, which happened in my hometown of Miami at the height of the Bush era. Well, they're known as the Liberty City 7 after a neighborhood in Miami. Feds say these terror suspects from the Miami area wanted to ignite a guerrilla street war in our country, basically, and bring down the government put in in an Islamic regime. The men reportedly told informants that bombings weren't enough. They wanted to create chaos. Prosecutors say they planned to blow up the Sears Tower in Chicago, the FBI office in Miami, among others, and to even get down to the level of poisoning salt shakers in restaurants. Not the salt shakers. Now, I remember this case at the time. People in Miami were absolutely freaked out. I mean, there was a total media frenzy at the time, and it was the the big story for a while. Well, it turns out 
the whole thing was just a bunch of BS. Right. So I'm glad you brought up the, the case in Florida, which is the which was known as the Liberty City 7 case. And that's actually the case that, that first alerted me to, to what was happening. And it was really one of the first cases um, that the FBI used these sting tactics in a, in a terrorism case. Um, and in that case, you know, I happened to be a reporter down in Miami, and I was there when they announced the charges, which uh, were themselves on, on its face, you know, on their face very ridiculous, which was that the FBI accused seven men who lived in Liberty City, which is a, a poor African-American and Haitian-American area of Miami, of plotting a ground war against the United States government. You know, obviously seven guys can't effectively plot a ground war, yet through this plot, the FBI described how they met an al-Qaeda operative, and that al-Qaeda operative was going to help them bomb the Sears Tower and also the Miami office of the FBI. But on close inspection of that case, it was clear that it wasn't all that it seemed. They, they never had any weapons. All of the weapons would have been provided by the government. They never knew anyone from al-Qaeda. The al-Qaeda operative was actually a paid FBI informant. And they really never had any means or opportunity for committing their crime were it not for the, the FBI providing everything that they needed. And, um, and, you know, what also came out was that these men were, were pretty much idiots. You know, one man, the leader, a man named Narcille Batiste, described how he had hoped to bomb the Sears Tower, and if it fell in such a way, it would uh, hit Lake Michigan and cause a tsunami that would drown the city of Chicago. Um, obviously, that's that's patently ridiculous, but it's also indicative of, of many people who are caught in these sting operations. And, and so what my research tried to do was look at every terrorism prosecution that had come out of U.S. courts in the decade after 9-11 and try to figure out how many involved really dangerous people and how many involved people like the Liberty City 7 who were not for the FBI would never have been able to commit their crimes. And, and what I found, I think, was, was pretty striking, which was that, you know, in the decade after 9-11, there were a handful of cases involving truly dangerous people. Uh, Faisal Shahzad, for example, delivered a bomb to Times Square, or Najib Azazi tried to detonate bombs on the New York City subway system. Then you have the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber. But except for about five defendants, the rest of the cases involved people who were caught in sting operations that were it not for the FBI never would have been able to move forward in a terrorist plot. And in the decade after 9-11, 150 people were indicted and convicted who were like the Liberty City 7, who were it not for the FBI, never could have committed their crimes. And for the most part, these were people on the fringes of Muslim communities, mentally ill, economically desperate, and easily manipulated by FBI informants or undercover agents. 150 people in the decade after 9-11, most of them mentally ill, economically desperate, or easily manipulated by the FBI. But lest you think that this is a recent phenomenon, well, it's not. This is a common tactic going back to the very, to the very founding of the FBI. The most famous operation was known as COINTELPRO, in which the FBI infiltrated various left-wing groups with agent provocateurs, who then encouraged infighting as well as acts of violence in order to discredit them. One of the classic examples of this was the case of Afeni Shakur, mother of one Tupac Shakur. She was a Black Panther in the 1970s, and she was also arrested for allegedly plotting to commit acts of terrorism. One morning, armed police stormed into Afeni Shakur's apartment and arrested her. All the other members of her cell were also arrested. They were charged with what the government said was a giant plan to destroy those elements of society which the defendants call the power structure. It included attacking police stations and planning to bomb five large department stores and the Bronx Botanical Gardens. They became known as the Panther 21. 
their trial was held in a state of paranoia about further attacks by the Panthers. But it also caused a sensation when it was revealed that three of the founding members of the group had been undercover police officers. What was stranger was that some of those officers seemed to have been unaware that there were other undercover agents in the cell. They were also the most active members of the group. We had to organize everything, one of the undercover agents explained at the trial, because everyone else in the group was off doing what they called their own shit. They're off doing their own shit. Now, Afeni Shakur ended up representing herself in court for going the right to an attorney and actually won her case by getting the undercover agents to admit that they were the ones orchestrating everything. And when you look at the details of the Michigan plot to kidnap Governor Whitner, uh, a lot of the same patterns start to emerge. The alleged mastermind of the plot was a guy named Adam Fox, who at the time of the storming of the state capitol, just six months before the plot to kidnap the governor was to be executed, he had no ties to any militant groups whatsoever. Fox was living with his dogs in the basement of a friend's vacuum repair shop, the Vac Shack, in Grand Rapids. Lacking long-term employment, he smoked weed and spent hours on Facebook looking to make connections with other members of the Patriot community who felt angry at a government they felt had failed them, according to his fiancée at the time, Amanda Keller. Fox's main outlet was pumping iron. Keller, who was with him on April 30th, said she had thought of Fox as a teddy bear, but his mood changed overnight when Whitmer, as part of her stay-at-home order, closed all the gyms in the state. Now, after the riot at the Michigan State Capitol, Fox got more involved in the Wolverine Watchmen group, often with the outright encouragement of the federal informant named Dan, the former Iraq war veteran. Quote, stopping violent, idea, uh, violent ideas like this was what Dan said drove him to law enforcement in the first place. But now, with his two FBI agents at his side, he told Fox he would help. Hey, man, Dan said, if you want to come and train at Joe's sometime with us, that would be great. Dude, we are down to fucking train, brother, for sure, Fox replied. But as the weeks went on, Fox's behavior got stranger and stranger to the point where he started to freak out other members of the group. Quote, listening to him that night, Beller, one of the watchmen, became convinced that Fox was out of his mind and repeatedly shared those concerns with Dan, court testimony shows. Morrison, the group's commanding officer, also expressed reservations about Fox. But Dan used his growing influence to include Fox in group meetings and to develop his own personal relationship with him. Fox, in turn, began referring to Dan as his brother, according to Fox's former fiance. So this guy, Dan, a federal informant, was doing his best to keep the increasingly unhinged Fox in the group's good graces. And then, a few weeks later, Dan drove five watchmen and six thousand rounds of ammunition to Cambria, Wisconsin for a national training exercise. He rented a Suburban for the weekend, paid for gas, and subsidized food and lodging for the group, all courtesy of the FBI. So you start to see the dynamic here. There's definitely a seed of bad behavior amongst groups like these. But often, it's the FBI itself that pours water on that seed and provides the necessary nutrients for that seed to grow. Without the FBI's help, maybe these guys would have just been annoying assholes who cosplay with guns and post memes on Facebook all day. But back to the original storming of the Michigan State Capitol, which was a sort of preview of the storming of the National Capitol in D.C. on January 6th. Our good friend Dan was in the thick of that as well. In fact, he did his best to try to warn the FBI that this was going down. Quote, panic rising, Dan slipped away from the group for a moment and spoke into the recording device he was carrying, which he knew was being monitored live by his FBI handlers. The watchmen, he said, were preparing to breach the Capitol. 
The agents couldn't speak back to him, but he hoped they could at least warn the police about what was coming. But then something, something surprising happened. The Michigan State Police stood down and let the protesters, including those in full tactical gear, enter the building unopposed. They could even bring their guns so long as they submitted to a temperature check for COVID-19. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it? At the time, it was seen as evidence that the state police forces were just sympathetic to the right-wing militia cause and let them walk right in. But as Branko Martinich points out in a piece this, this week for Jacobin, this kind of thing, just like the Fed's behavior before the January 6th riot, are the perfect pretext to expand the state security forces' power. He writes, Speaking of January 6th, there remains serious questions about law enforcement agencies' conduct on that day. The security and intelligence failure, which was the only reason the Stop the Steal protest was able to get out of hand and charge into the Capitol, still hasn't been adequately explained. Besides contradictory testimony from officials about the failure of their response, we know the FBI and others warned the Capitol Police in advance about the protests. We now also know that there was at least one undercover agent among the rioters, on top of the fact that the leader of the Proud Boys, one of the far-right groups who took part in the incident, was a prolific law enforcement informant. In the words of his own lawyer, and at least four Proud Boy leaders in total were feeding information to the Bureau since 2019, directly contradicting the FBI, FBI director's sworn testimony earlier this year. Why, given all this, did law enforcement fail so spectacularly to keep a mostly unarmed crowd of protesters out of the Capitol, particularly after the police's militarized and heavy-handed response to the anti-police brutality protests over the past six years? How were they taken by surprise when the entire event was planned in the open anyway? Why have law enforcement officials offered inconsistent, contradictory, and even misleading testimony? All good questions the national press has been largely uninterested in, obsessed instead with debunking overcooked claims that the FBI organized the riot. None of this points to a deliberate conspiracy, but it certainly seems like the two principal events upon which a dangerous new domestic war on terror has been launched off of are, first, a kidnapping plot that only existed because the FBI made it happen, and second, a completely avoidable security failure by law enforcement that was asleep at the wheel. In other words, it points to a classic national security dynamic, agencies overzealously prosecuting national security threats or royally screwing up, and instead of admitting to the mistakes, using the incidents to justify more power and resources for themselves. And what are the concrete concrete effects of this? Well, a more powerful and unaccountable security state, just like the spate of laws that were passed after 9-11 that allowed the government to essentially spy on everyone. In the wake of January 6th, left-wing lawmakers facilitated the passage of a bill funneling enormous amounts of money and resources to the Capitol Police, which has now alarmingly alarmingly been expanded into a national anti-terrorism police force, one that's conveniently exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. Now, this was always going to be the endgame. In the 60s and 70s, the government played on people, preyed on people's fears of left-wing revolutionary groups in the aughts. It was all about jihadist terrorism. Now, in the wake of Trump, the boogeyman is these right-wing militias, which isn't to say that they are great guys by any stretch of the imagination. But one just has to do a simple power analysis to evaluate the gravity of their threat. As often comes out months after people have moved on from the story, it was the FBI itself who played up the threat. And it's not like these FBI agents are great guys either. In fact, the lead special agent in the case of the kidnapping plot, a guy named Richard Trask, is now facing criminal charges of his own, accused of smashing his wife's head against the nightstand and choking her at her home in Kalamazoo County's Ashtempo Township on July 18th, according to a criminal complaint filed this week. On the day of the attack, 
Trask and his wife drank alcohol while attending a swingers party at a hotel. And Trask's, uh, and she didn't like the event and couple fought on the way home, according to an affidavit in support of the charges against Trask. In their bedroom at home, the wife was laying down when Trask got on top of her and grabbed the sides of her head, the affidavit said. Trask, Trask smashed her head into a nearby nightstand multiple times. Then Trask's wife then tried to grab Trask's beard to get him off of her, but he started to choke her. The affidavit said the woman told police she doesn't think she lost consciousness before she grabbed Trask's testicles, ending the fight. So the bottom line is don't trust the FBI's narrative when it says it has foiled a dangerous terrorist plot. The incentives on a micro level are for personal career advancement. That's, that's obvious. And on the macro level, they are more power to the FBI. The FBI has orchestrated domestic terror plots for decades in order to play up its own vital role. The media often runs with the story immediately rather than waiting to evaluate evidence and questioning the narrative. Next time, we should be more cautious and we should watch for the predictable effects of playing up fears of terrorism, whether foreign or domestic. It never ends well. What I hate is that this just provides... um more fodder for conspiracy theorists and stuff, right? Like, and and people who don't trust our institutions because they have good reason to not trust institutions. And so it's so counterproductive. It's awful. I mean, yes, there are the ramifications that you perfectly outlined regarding, you know, the security state, more surveillance, more interference in our day-to-day lives that violate our privacy rights and all of that, our civil liberties. But then there's also a huge, I mean, it's all interconnected, right? When you look at the more insane conspiracy theorists uh, or theories that are out there, or like QAnon's a good example, I think, right? It's so hard to counter that with evidence because they don't trust the institutions that are trying to provide evidence counter to what they believe. So it's just, it keeps getting worse. And I don't know what the solution is really. Um, because we're, are we going to stop the FBI from doing what the FBI does? I mean, if the FBI wanted to keep an eye on things because there's a group of people who might be on their own planning some sort of terrorist threat in the US, that makes sense. But planting a seed or literally like planning the plot themselves and then shifting that blame onto any group of people is not what the FBI is supposed to be doing. That doesn't keep anyone safe. What it does is it makes it appear as though they're doing their jobs and they're effective at it. I think that's part of what motivates them. But also, yes, I think it, it provides um, the excuse to violate civil liberties and encroach on our on our freedoms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar to um, when you see kind of news happening um, around the world that kind of benefits... Uh, the national security state that comes from sources in the national security state that are like, you know, for the, a good example is one that we always talk about. That's kind of like our hobby horse, which is the the Russian bounty uh, in Afghanistan story, which came mm-hmm. out and everyone's like, oh, my God, can you believe this? Can you believe this? And like, all, obviously, all the sourcing was just like, you know, high level uh, people in the Pentagon <laughs> and stuff like that. And it's like, this is so obviously um, a a like a plant into the media in order to justify, you know, our staying in Afghanistan to justify, you know, whatever, like whatever belligerence towards Russia and like a million things that kind of benefit um, the national security state. Um, and then the media is just like, whoa, wow, look, this is, this is happening. We, we, we just run with it and then people like read it and then they believe it, you know, like that's just, that's what, that's what drives me crazy about all this stuff is that like, we should never trust government sources. Like th- 
they're they're self-interested just like anyone else. But the media is very, very obsequious towards government sources. They they especially like yep. especially like the cable news and, and all these they it's just like if the government is saying it, they believe it wholesale. And you just can't believe but, it. You just can't believe it. Well, yeah, and I like I going back to the point about everything being connected, um, why? Why does the media just believe what government sources have to say? rather than being incredibly skeptical uh, of, of their sources. Well, it goes back to the profit motive behind media, which is why the Fairness Doctrine was so incredibly important, right? They want access to these sources uh, because access to these sources definitely plays a role in um, the reporting. They're able, they're able to say, oh, we got a scoop. We got the scoop, right? Yeah. And that allows them to um, increase the readership or the viewership of their content and mm-hmm. make a profit. Like it, yeah. it always goes back to the profit motive. So, and, and yeah, they don't want to, they don't want to destroy their contacts or, or their relationship with these sources. And so yeah. they'll do this like incredibly weak, flimsy reporting that carries out manufactured narratives that manufacture the consent for wars that we shouldn't be engaged in. Yeah, no, and, and in the case of 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 this this latest stuff coming out of the from the FBI and and all these right wing groups, you know, again, it's it, it's it's not dissimilar to like um, radical uh, Islamic terrorism or whatever. Like there is like a seed, there is like a seed of of truth there. Like it's not like completely just a, a total fiction. You know, like there are right wing, uh, very dangerous uh, militia groups out there and they're not people that I want to be around or, you know, <laughs> and uh, but, yep. you, you know, like you have to try as best you can um, to have a little perspective uh, on it, because when it becomes this kind of big media frenzy, um, then the response is always like, well, we got to do something about it. And the 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 tools available to do something about it um, are always the same. They're just an expansion of of the security state's power. And it's just that that like the I remember like talking to Bessner about it like the 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 day after the January sixth uh, thing happened, and he was like, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know, like it is like this is what this is what happened. <laughs> you know, like because we have so much historical precedent um, to to lean on. It's just the same thing over and over again. It's much like when you hear about like some media story about some attack on American soldiers and abroad, like you know, whether it was the Gulf of Tonkin or whether it was like a million other things where, you know, it's just used as a casus belli to go to war. Um, and you got to question those things because over time, what always ends up coming out is that these things were exaggerated or they didn't happen or they were orchestrated by the by the military itself. I mean, that's just that's that's the the, the reality of this. And with the case of of January 6th, which like it happened. It was. It was so obvious that something was going to happen. I mean, they were like talking about it openly on 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 Facebook and on social media in in the weeks leading up to it, and yet they did nothing about it. They did. You know, it just. It was just allowed to happen. And you know, again, you look at the. It's like that that scene in Lebowski. You know, you know, it's like Lenin said. You know, you ask who benefits, uh, qui bono or whatever, and uh, all of a sudden the Capitol Police is getting increased funding and you know vast sweeping powers to do this like national anti-terrorism police force. And by the way, exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. Great. Ken Klippenstein can't even like yeah. uh, look into their shit. Yeah, I mean, look, I. 
I think the January 6th situation is it's frustrating because they had a very they ha, they're obviously not organized and don't really have a real strategy or plan in place, but their motives were clear and what they were attempting to do was clear and had they gotten to the same room that lawmakers were in, who knows what would have happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um so there's that, but at the same time, you know, yes, uh, deal with people who have broken the law, sure. But more importantly, on the day that that happened, right before the riots, you have Congressman Mo Brooks, you know, giving um, a speech, incite, like partially inciting what happened. And, you know, he was interviewed by the slate and he stupidly admitted that he was wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> he was wearing body armor. Why were you wearing body armor unless you were expecting violence to break out? And if you were expecting violence to break out, why did you give the kind of speech that you did? You get mm-hmm. what I'm, So, like, I bring that up because I want people in positions of power to be held accountable for what they did, for mm-hmm. their, their encouragement of what happened in the Capitol that day. And right now, you know, we keep hearing about this uh, select committee to investigate what happened. They're so hyper-focused on the perpetrators, like the people who, who stormed the Capitol. But there's very little conversation about the lawmakers who, who lied to the American people for weeks leading up to that, right? Lying to the American people about what actually happened or transpired in the 2020 election. Those are, and then some of those people are involved in the investigation. How insane is that? Like the whole thing is insane. And so for anyone who wants like justice or more importantly, like justice is one thing. I just don't want it to happen again. I just don't want it to happen again, Yeah. right? But if if you want to prevent that from happening again, you need to get to the heart of the issue. And I don't see anyone in Congress focused on that at all. No, no, they're not. And 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 like you said, I mean, like, you know, the QAnon shaman is a like a patsy. Like, he's just such an obvious dumbass, you know, um, and 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 all these people, are, like a bunch of people are going to go to jail and whatever. They're they're You know, I don't they're, they're awful people, whatever. Um, but the but the 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 actual root causes are not going to be addressed. And then the effects, the long term effects are going to be incredibly negative. I mean, it's the same. It's 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 a version of what happened after 9-11. You know, like obviously the, what happened after 9-11 was much was much graver. But it's a it's a version of the same exact dynamic in which like we were just focused on the wrong thing we were just absolutely focused on the wrong thing we were not focused on the root causes and then our our response to it was insanely overblown and not addressing any of the root causes instead focusing the um the brunt of it on innocent people on you know and 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 expanding the, the the state's power to do all kinds of previously illegal stuff while also doing a lot of currently illegal stuff, but then not prosecuting the state, the state on, on any of that stuff, whether it was torture or, you know, illegal rendition or things like that. Um, and so versions of like that are going to happen because these people are so obviously unsavory. I mean, if you watch the video of these like right wing militia guys, like they're insane. They're insane. And they're, they're yeah. awful. I, I hate that, you know, like they're they're, But there's such an easy there's such an easy thing to, to, to serve up, you know, and we're, we're like mm-hmm. it's so tempting for us to lap it up. To be like, oh yeah, yeah, just keep throw the you know, like get those guys, you know, like do it, like do whatever it takes, you know, like get those guys out of here. But like we have to try to yeah. uh, um exhibit a little bit of self-control and caution and be like, what's really going on here? Who benefits? You know, what are the root causes and what are the effect what are the likely predictable effects? Yeah, I mean, I wish that there was a way to focus on actual cons. When I when I talk about holding people accountable in regard to January 6th. 
I'm talking about the politicians who who did this, right? Who who like just nonstop provocative speeches, nonstop lies, you know, encouraging them to do what they did. There's no conversation about consequences for them. In fact, the only time they're part of the conversation is, well, are they going to be are they going to be good team players in investigating the Capitol riots? Why do you want the people who provoked the Capitol riots to be part of the investigation in the Capitol riots? Like, it just makes no sense. And, yeah. and that's honestly part of the problem with the Democratic Party. Right. Like Nancy Pelosi putting like Liz Cheney on on the select committee. She was one of the um, people that Pelosi appointed and like bragging about how this is going to be a bipartisan effort. Everyone, we wouldn't want this to appear political. (laughs) No, but the whole point of the select committee in the way that it's being carried out is only political. It's not really about getting to the bottom of everything. And And that's frustrating for someone who actually wants uh, the very people in positions of power to be held accountable for what they did. Mm. Yeah. 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 Anyway. uh, Well, you know, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, Hear from a very wise person, uh, Dr. Cornell West, who we interviewed earlier in the week. Uh, So we're going to go to the interview in just a minute. But for those of you watching live, I just want to encourage you uh, to send in your super chats because we're going to save um, a few minutes toward the end of the show to answer your questions, read your comments. So as you're watching, maybe you have some feedback on the interview itself, feel free to send us super chats and we'll respond to them when we come back in about, I think, 45 minutes. Uh, So we'll see you then. Joining us now is Dr. Cornell West, someone who we've been really looking forward to having a conversation with, especially post the 2020 election. Uh, Dr. West, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I salute both of you and I especially salute Jakob Ben magazine. It's the best leftist magazine out there. But you know, we do begin on a very sad note with the death of um, Bob Moses, one of the great uh, freedom fighters of the 60s all the way into the 21st century. Glenn Ford, founder of Black Agenda Report. He's one of the great journalists, really builds on the legacy of Ida B. Wells more than, than most others. And then also near death is Don Shriver, who was a, uh, a giant in theological education who facilitated James Cone, who's the founder of Black Liberation Theology at Union Theological Seminary. And even my new chair, Dietrich Bonhoeffer chair, Don Shriver and Peggy Shriver made the contribution for that chair. And so to have all three of them uh, gone and near gone is, uh, is a heavy, very heavy moment. For me, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure for you all as well. Yeah, you know, as you say that, it, it just goes perfectly with a question that I've been really desperate to ask you because I'm struggling right now in terms of where the left is uh, post 2020 election. You know, you you talk about these great leaders and how they're no longer with us. And sometimes things can feel a little hopeless. And so I I wanted to ask you, you know, you've always had this sense of optimism. And I think it's a huge part of who you are. It's a huge part of your fight. Where do you find that hope from? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Well, I mean, as a blues man in the life of the mind, and jazz man in the world of ideas, I've never been either a pessimist or an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And hope is as much a verb as it is a virtue. And therefore, very much like the Ackerman Magazine, 
I have to stay in motion. I can't be a spectator. I've got to be a participant, engaged in movement, motion, momentum, organizing, as well as the reading, reflecting, and writing. And as long as you're in the funk and in the mess of the movement, then the hope is found in seeing people refusing to give up, seeing people fight, seeing people serve others, seeing people sacrifice for something bigger than them. And as long as you're part of that motion and movement, that's where the hope is found. So in that sense, hope is as much an effect of action, probably more than it is a cause of action in that regard. I mean, for me, you know, I I don't even believe so much in the language of hope. You know, it's just a matter of trying to be a hope. And if you are a hope, you don't talk about hope. Mm. Hope's too abstract. Uh, 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 it's too abstract. If your hope in the fleshified sense, the concretized sense, the actualized sense of being part of movements, organizing, mobilizing, then you're forever able to move with others in solidarity here and around the world, oppressed people in every quarter of the globe who are fighting. When you look in their eyes, you look in their hearts, you look in their minds, you see that sparkle, you see that fire. You see that strength and you say, shoot, I got to keep on moving. Yeah. I to be part of this. But keep in mind, last but not least, you know, Gerda says, he who has never despaired has never lived. And uh, there is no hope without despair. We're wrestling with despair all the time. That's, just a, that's a sign that we're sensitive to suffering. That's a sign that we're trying to reflect on the suffering to try to alleviate the suffering with our social analysis and with our social practice. Yeah. It's, it's, it, to me, what I, what I always appreciate about hearing you speak on any show or, or, or any platform or, or, or read your work is, is that you, you constantly tie it to something bigger, a bigger struggle. Um, And I find that that's what really gives life meaning is to surrender yourself to a struggle that is bigger than yourself, which is something that's very difficult in the modern time, which everyone, every, everything is catered to our own personal whims in the moment, you know, as a consumer. um, And it really negates our ability to attach ourselves to something that's bigger than ourselves. And to me, the, the, the thing that really um, provides that for me is to be able to zoom back and, and look at things with a perspective of history. And we live in a, in a moment of one of the most bitter defeats for the left. But often in those defeats in the past, there, there has been um, a sort of darkness before the light moment. I, I, I would like to hear you, your thoughts as to what where we are, you know, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020 were unimaginable 10 years before or even four years before. Um, and now that that seems like it has opened some some avenues of possibility um, that were denied to us in, you know, in the dark period of, you know, the early 2000s or the 90s or things like that. Um, where 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 are you thinking um, right now in terms of um, where we are? I don't appreciate that. One just brief point, though, about um, transcendence, uh, trying to be be connected to something bigger than us. You know, Rabbi Hesher used to say that 
we've got to be connected to something that calls us to serve and sacrifice that's larger than us. Yeah. But the problem is the market has colonized the dominant form of transcendence. So people are, we've got careers, opportunism, uh, uh, you know, just market-driven conception of transcendence. So that success, financial prosperity, status, spectacle, celebrity, all those are market forms of colonizing transcendence. And I mean, leftists in all of our varieties, you know, we're calling for non-Marxist forms of transcendence. It could be moral, it could be spiritual, it could be political, it's something bigger than us. It's solidarity, it's justice, it's freedom, it's democracy, equality. And the only way you can concretize that is to sustain different networks, different matrices, different organizations and structures that are countervailing forces against the market-driven forms of transcendence. And that's true for just market-driven forms of universities, market-driven forms of civic institutions and so forth. So, so that that becomes a, a launching pad into looking at the grimness of our own moment. Because it's true that, I mean, my God, just, um, you know, 12 months ago, we had hundreds of thousands of people on the street with Black Lives Matter. And that is inseparable from Bernie Sanders' campaign, going back to Occupy, feminist movements highlighting the Me Tooism, anti-homophobic movements bringing to bear the kind of... Uh, Dignity for uh, gay brothers and lesbian sisters and, and queers and trans and non-binary precious folk. So that the voices are still there. It's just that the imperial structure, but the empire is just so decadent. Mm-hmm. And uh, the wonderful piece that I read on the ruling class by our dear brother, was it Doug, was it? Doug Henwood. Yeah, I highly recommend folk to read that in Yacht. You can just see the level of decay of the ruling classes so that it's just the outright unleashing of gangsterization. And they've always been barbaric. But some barbarians still have certain kinds of constraints. Whereas now the gangsterization of the, of the empire with a ruling class so decayed that it's very difficult for... Um, social movements that have impact on elites yeah. who are gangsters. I mean, hypocrisy is the is the is the tribute that vice pays the virtue. So, so you're a hypocrite. At least you still have standards. Where we've got ruling class now, it has no standards at all whatsoever. So, so you can't even call them hypocrites. Because the gap between virtue and vice is no longer important. They don't care. That's what greed run amok is. You see. And so dealing with that, there's a sense in which you know, we're glad that we have as many voices, organizations, journals on the left in, in some ways. And uh, when you think back of um, you know, where we were, let's say when I was you all age, you know, let's say. Now, you all, I mean, you, the Reaganism was running amok. The neoliberalism was already taking off. 
the, the imperial militarism was running amok. Mm-hmm. Martin was dead. Malcolm was dead. SDS was pushed to the side. The students were more and more filtering to a mainstream rather than listening to what C. Wright Mills had talked about, what Tom Hayden had talked about, what Barbara Ehrenreich was talking about. We didn't have mainstreaming and streamlining of the young students in the knowledge factories, which became so tied to big donors, big beneficiaries, big money, uh, uh, and then investing in South Africa. We can go on and on. So there's, there's a sense in which we uh, can acknowledge just how dim things are, but also acknowledge that in the dimness, you got some folks still fighting with tremendous energy and quality. I know it's, I mean, that's incredibly inspiring. And, and that's honestly where I try to draw strength from because you're right about those moments of despair. It's part of being human. It's part of, you know, actually caring about this struggle and being involved in it. But, you know, one of the other things that comes to mind is you mentioned the Reagan era, you know, when I think of the Reagan era, I really think about, you know, the, neoliberal era of of America, like taking off. Um, And now there's a lot more critique and criticism of neoliberalism, which is a good sign. But I think back at the Reagan era and, you know, when you look at the debate that he had with George H.W. Bush on immigration, it sounded like two liberals debating each other on immigration. And, And you see how our discourse on certain issues has actually been regressing over the last uh, few decades. Um, You you look at the open and overt hatred that spewed on literally like news outlets today and uh, the lack of any type of shame in in that kind of discourse or rhetoric. And so, you know, you mentioned how we have made some progress, but there's also this underlying system that we're all trying to fight under. And that system has the incentives in the wrong place, right? It incentivizes people um, in, in many cases to kind of abandon Uh, the fight for equality, whether it be on social issues or economic issues for personal gain, personal interests. And honestly, when you think about the need for survival, you almost can't even blame people for doing that. But how do we mitigate that? How do we prevent it from happening? Yeah, well, I mean, all we have is um, our traditions and each other, which is to say our movements. So we have to be able to generate sources of insight, and sources of inspiration. You need both simultaneously. The insight has to flow from the quality of our social and historical analysis. So that, for example, I mean, to go back to Reaganism versus Trumpism, how do you account for the neo-fascist turn? How do you account for the rawness of the atavism, the rawness of the hatred, the rawness of the contempt? It was already there in Reagan's movement, but it was not as raw. Well, there you have a collapse of a Republican Party. You have a collapse of a certain kind of conservatism that was tied to traditional values, fiscal tightness, uh, 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 suspicion of federal government, and so forth and so on. The underlying comedy denominator was allegiance to big capital and money, allegiance to militarism abroad, and deeply white supremacists and and male supremacists, and also anti-Jewish and and, and anti-homophobic. But 
the fascist, the neo-fascist version is is different. Mm. There's no doubt about it, and that's the rawness of it. You see, and uh, you know, in, in different places. I mean, in Portugal and Spain and Argentina and, Ch- and Chile and so forth. You know, they they've had neo-fascists who have been part of their public life for a long time. Whereas in the United States now, you know, other than black folk dealing with white supremacy, which is, has its own neo-fascist uh, effects, that most Americans are not used to having neo-fascists in public life. So explicit, so raw in their hatred and contempt for those cast as other. So we have to provide insight, historical analysis and social analysis so people can actually see more clearly what's going on. But they also have to be fired up. That's where the inspiration comes in. And that's where the sense you can't be Pollyannish, can't be Disneylandish. They go, oh, we're just going to turn the corner and we have a revolution. No, 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 no. These are some thugs running things. They will kill your mama. They will lie on you. They will send you to jail. They will crush you. They will undercut your career. They'll do anything. And that's what neo-fascists historically have done across national boundaries. Uh, though each neo-fascism has its historical, specifically uh, uh, different qualities relative to context, relative to nation, state, and economy at a particular moment in any history. See. So, but it's that seeing and that being in movement, that insight and the inspiration that we need. And that's another reason why Jacobin Magazine is so very important. Because people are hungry and thirsty looking for the real thing. This is what Brother Glenn Ford and I spent so much time. And that's why I love that brother so and, and miss him so the Black Agenda Report, he's out there all by himself with Margaret and, 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 and Ajamu and a, a few others. And what is he doing? Let's keep track on the decadence of the Black bourgeoisie. Let's keep track of the decadence of Black neoliberal leadership that's leading Black folks suffering so incessantly on every level, psychic, political, economic. Leading folk into a dead end. You know, that's the Obama mania and all that other mess. You see. Well, Glenn was carrying the Black Agenda report, just like Jacobin, carrying the truth telling and the justice seeking against that kind of mainstream hegemonic way of looking at America and Black America. And in the end, more and more people recognize it. Brother Glenn was right. Sister Margaret's right. Brother Jamo tends to be more right than we thought. Jacob is right about these things. I'll be. Dang, they seem so far out. They seem so outside of the mainstream. You don't say. Because that mainstream is so truncated. You remember this wonderful line from um, Henry James and Robert Louis Stevenson, January 12th, I think it was, 1901. He says, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. So neo-fascist vision, neoliberal vision, 
They cheat us of seeing. You can't see the suffering. You can't see the structures. You can't see the institutions. You can't see the forms of solidarity that are fighting it. So that if people are locked into neoliberal corporate media, they're not going to see too much. Yeah. They're locked into Fox News. They're not going to see too much. And where do you get the broader comprehensive analysis that allows people to see and then be inspired? That's the real challenge right now. And that's why we've got, we've got to become even more fortified in sustaining institutions like Jacobin. Yeah. You mentioned um, the black bourgeoisie um, and uh, there was an article in Jacobin that looked at the uh, the victory of India Walton in in Buffalo um, for mayor. And she actually did better in neighborhoods uh, that were white and Latino than than in her own neighborhood, which was heavily black. And, and I found that interesting, you know, that that, you know, this uh, a black nurse, uh, radical socialist um, who wins um, on primarily a white and Latino uh, voting base while while the, her her neighborhood, which is heavily black, um, you know, voted against her, um, and you know, similar thing happened with Bernie. Um, it, it went, you know, what wh- what is the what's what's the dynamic there? The the sort of credibility of the black bourgeoisie with with a, a lot of uh, black voters to to deliver, frankly, conservative um, political out, outcomes, even though they when you poll black Americans, um, they're 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 the they're the some of the most left uh, people on on every issue in the country. How does that dynamic work? Yeah, both of y'all ask such wonderful questions. I'm telling you, <laughs> but it, be, it just reconfirms what I'm saying about. I'm going to clip that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think it's important to, to keep the context in mind that you see with Bob Moses and Martin King felt. Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, and the Rabbi Heschel, and the Tom Haydens, because it was a multiracial movement in the 60s, breaking the back of American apartheid, breaking the back of the old Jim Crow. And it produced two major results. One was the new Jim Crow, which was a mass incarceration of the Black masters, the Black poor and working class. And then there was the mass incorporation of the black middle classes. And and with so many of the radical leaders assassinated or incarcerated, it meant then that liberal and neoliberal black leadership was viewed as the vanguard of the black freedom movement. Mm. And so with Brother Barack Obama, you get the the height of success in the American empire. He's running the whole empire. Well, that's a major shadow cast. Now, what did he do about the new Jim Crow and the mass incarceration? What did he do about the unbelievable class collapse in in terms of schools and education and healthcare and housing for the black masses? He made it worse. Mm Mm-hmm. He made it worse because he went with Wall Street. He bailed out Wall Street. But the model of black success became that black presidency. And so the black politicians imitate and emulate 
his neoliberal politics thinking that's the way to win elections. That's what we ran up against with Brother Bernie. How can we account for the fact that the most progressive presidential candidate in the 20th century was not supported by the most progressive voting bloc in America, namely the black voting bloc? Why? Because the Obama shadow was cast so deeply that we, myself, Nina Turner and Danny Glover and a host of black folk, we could not push effectively against that Obama shadow, that Obama effect, which goes back to the mass incorporation of especially the black middle classes into liberal and neoliberal politics and into being well-adjusted to an unjust empire and well-adapted to an indifferent set of elites, no matter what color they are. Mm -hmm. So make the elites more colorful, more black, more brown, keep the empire in place, keep the predatory capitalist system in place, and things will be better. I mean, that's that's part of the neoliberal message. So that what is happening now, This I'm on my way from Sister Nina Turner uh, running in Cleveland. We got the election coming up on Tuesday. I'm going to spend five days there with her. We're going to do 12 events every day the way we did with Bernie, right? And Bernie's going to be there too. God bless him. Bernie will be there too on Saturday at the rally, trying to deal with a moribund, milquetoast, neoliberal, corporate-dominated Democratic Party mm-hmm. that progressives on its edges. But most of the energy of the party is found among the progressives. It's found with the Quad and so forth. And, and, and Nina Turner is, is a you know major voice, figure, brilliant, visionary a politician wrestling with that dilemma, as it were, and it's a very, very tough race. So that uh, the sad thing in, in, in conclusion is that the uh, there's a, a, a sleepwalking, there's a neoliberal sleepwalking among black leadership that has tremendous impact on black voters. And keep in mind that you know, probably the majority of black people don't vote at all because that's another kind of statement, right? another kind of uh, expression in, in and of itself. But things things are shifting now. Things are shifting. I know I, uh, in my own my own work, you know, 10 years ago, you know, I used to have black folks say, you have lost your mind, critical of the black president. You ought to be shaming yourself. I'll go back to these same contexts, these same sites, and they'll say, I called you everything but a child of God, but I see you were telling the truth. I said, well, I've been saying the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Yes, I remember that yes. very well. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Nina Turner and the uh, congressional race for Ohio's 11th district. And I, I do want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, there wasn't really much attention paid to that race until it was very clear that Nina Turner was in fact going to win the democratic primary there. Uh, That was when Hillary Clinton got involved and gave the endorsement. And I mean, nobody really, I mean, I don't think anybody's really excited about a Hillary Clinton endorsement, but what that came along with was a lot of corporate cash 
And you mentioned Senator Bernie Sanders and how he's planning on, um, you know, rallying for Nina, which is wonderful. But on the other side, with Chantel Brown, who's the you know neoliberal candidate who's up against uh, Nina Turner, you have uh, Representative Jim Clyburn, who's going to be doing some campaigning for her. I bring him up because he has certainly gone out of his way to carry the carry out the best interests of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden has turned around and, you know, failed to deliver anything that Clyburn had wanted, really. Um, They're not going to do away with the filibuster. Biden isn't calling for the Senate to do away with the filibuster, which essentially stalls any important legislation that Clyburn or any other Democrat might want. So what's your response to that? And what do you think the influence of corporate money in that election is likely to do? Well, Indeed. One, that there is an increasing conflict and cleavage between black neoliberals and white neoliberals like Biden or Kamala Harris, who's on Biden's side. Because by Biden's refusal to hit the filibuster head on so that voting rights suppression is somehow secondary and tertiary for neoliberal black politicians, voting rights is number one. Now, it's still too narrow, it's still too truncated, but voting rights still are very important. And so you're getting more and more tension between Biden and his black neoliberal supporters. You can see it even on, 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 on in the media and so forth. The critique of Biden. Now, it's not a structural critique. It's not a leftist critique. It's just that Biden's making it very clear that he's not going to touch the filibuster. And if you don't touch the filibuster, you are allowing the shadow of Jim Crow within the political political sphere to expand. And and, a neoliberal black politician can't put up with that. Not at all. Now, exactly where that will go is an open question, because in the situation of Cleveland, Ohio, 11, where you have. Nina Turner, who is a bona fide progressive, who is very critical of Biden, not just when it comes to his refusal to hit the filibuster head on, but also his allegiance to Wall Street, his allegiance to the Pentagon, his promoting the predatory capitalism and the militarism abroad, a broader critique within the electoral political system. She then gets targeted by corporate money, as you rightly say, tied to the Hillary endorsement, you see. She gets targeted by those concerned about her being critical of American militarism. Mm -hmm. Not just in Africa and Latin America, but in the Middle East. So you get a lot of our deeply neoliberal and right-wing Jewish brothers and sisters in their uncritical defense of Israel, pouring big money in. And, uh, uh, and and once you get that kind of uh, coming together of neoliberals against a genuine progressive like Nina Turner, then it becomes very clear who's on which side. Because it's not just Clyburn, it's the whole Black Congressional Caucus. At least most of the Black Congressional Caucus have come out for the neoliberal candidates. And I was glad to see AOC and, 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 and a few others come out for, uh, for Nina. And we want to see even more, we hope this weekend. But it just, again, allows us to see more clearly, you know, uh, who is allied with whom when it comes to the three fundamental sources we must always highlight. Wall Street, 
Pentagon and xenophobic ideologies and sensibilities. White supremacists, male supremacists, anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, homophobic, and patriarchal. I, I, you mentioned the the uprisings uh, that were just twelve months ago, and they seem they seem like forever ago at this point. But um, the two largest sort of street demonstrations of my lifetime were the anti Iraq War protests and the protests that emerged after the the murder of George Floyd. And it strikes me that you know in in both cases um, they were huge and and all over the streets, but with and and in both cases like you know the Iraq War raged on and you know, the, the racism of the criminal justice system rages on as well. But the, the difference in the reaction from the power structures to them, to me, are, are quite striking in that the Iraq war protests were successfully, successfully marginalized uh, by corporate and, and government, uh, you know, power structures to make them look like ridiculous fringe people, even though there was, you know, millions of people on the street. With George Floyd protests, we've seen a sort of absorption of the energy by corporate America, mm-hmm. um, and it's almost commoditized a certain language about race um, that a, a sort of a certain radical language around race that has been become okay um, to be used within the context of say like a J.P. Morgan ad or uh, you know Raytheon doing uh, you know race uh, trainings in their in, in their you know, in their corporate retreats. Um, I, I, I was just curious what, what your reaction to that, to that phenomenon has been. Yeah. I mean, one, you're always going to get a very different reaction to imperial militarism than you are domestic of uh, racism. Mm. Because in the latter, you can't talk about American culture without talking about black culture. You see, the whole nation has been Afro-Americanized when it comes to culture, when it comes to music. Music's a dominant form of transcendence in late capitalist civilization, especially for young people, you see. So that you have to hit that in some way head on. And that's part of the mass incorporation I was talking about. you got to absorb it. you got to dilute the radical demands in order to get people to adapt and adjust to a status quo. So it becomes what I call, I mean, I talk about this in terms of my own Harvard situation, where you bring in the black professors, you make them the public face of your institution, but it looks like you're so multicultural, looks like you're so concerned about racism, diversity, equity, inclusion is the words you use over and over and over again. And it ends up just Jim Crow new style under market conditions in professional managerial context. Because in terms of who actually makes the most fundamental decisions, in terms of who is accountable to whom, it's still very much a white supremacist affair. It's still very much a white supremacist male affair in some ways. Even though you can make it more gender inclusive too and keep the hierarchy in place, keep the oppressive structure still in place. And corporations have to do the same thing. So the first thing you begin with symbolic gestures, Oh my God, we've hired some, we've hired three black folk in the last week. Oh my God, we've changed the name of monuments. Oh my God, we've got our commercials now with black faces. Don't you see our responding? Oh my, we, 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 we're undergoing a revolution here. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate diversity. Please get off the crack pipe. Spare me. We're talking about 
sharing of power in structures. That's democratizing. They're talking about racially, multiracially commodified is not the same as power sharing in forms of democratizing. Very different things. Very different things. And so the, you're, you, you, I think you're right that the, uh, the, the protests have opened up new opportunities for black middle class jobs, just like they opened up new opportunities for certain black professors. But then the question becomes, if it's, if it's Jim Crow new style, what does that mean? Are you going to respect the professors who are there? How long are the new folk in corporate America really going to last? How high will they go? If they go to the top, will they have already so thoroughly reshaped and refashioned themselves in the corporate elites that they might as well be white anyway? In terms of their actions and behaviors, in terms of how they spend their money and deploy their power and so forth. See, those are the kind of questions that are very important, not just for leftists, because I think we have to be very, very honest and bold about our leftist vision analysis. It's not just a leftist analysis. It's a quest for the truth. Mm -hmm. And the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. The Negro National Anthem is lift every voice. That's a democratic spirit. Every voice must be lifted. You got all these masses of voices out here that are not heard. Poor and working class, you're not lifting, you're not not listening to those voices. They're not choosing poverty. They're not choosing jobs that don't have have a living wage. They're not choosing indecent housing. They're not choosing unavailable health care. They're not choosing what these schools look like so decrepit and so forth. So their voices are not being heard. And so in that sense, that's for me, and you all know, you know, my own revolutionary Christian uh, view about this thing is that uh, I mean, it's, it's leftist in terms of being on an ideological spectrum, but I'm concerned about the truth. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about goodness. I'm concerned about beauty. Prince produced some beautiful music. He got his new album dropping today, right? Welcome to America. You all know the story about how he and I had this debate about, I'm saying, Prince, you, my dear brother, you a genius, but you ain't no Curtis Mayfield. (laughs) (laughs) So he went in the studio and made some Curtis Mayfield music, Born to Die. Sound just like Moments in Superfly, part of his genius. But he's concerned about truth and beauty and goodness. He just happens to land with a leftist critique of a decaying American empire shot through with greed and hatred and that vicious form of the white supremacy that so often are isolated from predatory capitalism mm-hmm. and imperial militarism. See, that's the critiques of Coates and company because they want to fetishize and, and reify race and white supremacy so that that's the fundamental issue. And it is mm-hmm. a f- crucial issue. But if it's not tied to a critique of the hierarchies of empire and capitalism, it's just a neoliberal face posing as so progressive, posing as so so radical. It ain't in the end that courageous just to talk about how racist America is. Now, I know that Kamala Harris has trouble with it. She said we're not even a racist country. Biden said we're not a racist country. Clyde Burr said we're not a racist country, just racist pockets. And it all started with Tim Scott. We're not a racist country. You say, oh, my God. 
if, if we're in that kind of denial, then we're really in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. So to come along and say America's racist, which I agree with Coates and the others, yes, that's true. But that's just a starting point. And if you don't go further with your critiques of empire and predatory capitalism, you're going to end up reproducing structures of domination that are going to continually weigh heavily on the black masses as you go off and live in your mansion and buy your second house in Martha's Vineyard and get your new jobs in a new university with millions of dollars and think that somehow you're on the cutting edge of being the vanguard of black liberation. No, you're just doing well financially and, and, and successful in an unjust society. You know, you talk about systems of, of domination and it's certainly true within our borders. And it's also very true outside of our borders where the United States, uh, through our foreign policy, um, goes against the will of people in various countries. We topple governments, uh, you know, leaders who have been democratically elected. Right now, a big story is um, the whistleblower, Daniel Hale, the one who leaked documents informing the American public about America's disgusting drone war abroad. He just got sentenced to 45 months in prison. We know what happens to whistleblowers these days if they, uh, you know, do anything courageous in informing the public about the wrongdoings of the Pentagon. Um, Then you also see the type of discourse taking place in regard to the protests in Cuba And what's fascinating to me is while there is a bit of an awakening in regard to human rights abuses within our borders, there's still a significant portion of the country that thinks that it's totally okay to, you know, not only criticize, you know, perceived human rights abuses or actual human rights abuses abroad, but say that we need to do airstrikes or use military force in response to that. Um, but like, wh- why is it that there's still kind of this illusion of, of freedom within our borders? Because I think that that's not really the case. We saw the way some of those protesters were treated last summer, you know, getting snatched up by federal agents and thrown into unmarked vans. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you'd expect to see in the countries that we bomb. Right. Um, what can we do to kind of further the awakening about what's actually happening in our borders and what we need to do to actually address that rather than, you know, talk about toppling governments we don't like? Right. No, indeed, indeed. I think that the deeper one finds oneself in genuine struggle for freedom. Uh, is the more readier one sees just how aggressive the repressive apparatus of the U.S. nation state is. So, I mean, we talked about, we started with Bob Moser, getting beat by White Brother Castle, months in jail. We got H. Rap Brown right now, Tucson, Arizona, 40 some years, Imam DeMille. Mumi Abu Jamal, Sada Shakur, so many who got deeply involved in genuine struggle for freedom and found themselves up against ugly repression. And they didn't have to go outside of the borders to find that repression. Same would be true in terms of our precious uh, brothers and sisters coming in from Mexico and the issues of them and the immigrants, the precious immigrants. You'll see 
just how repressive things are. Same is true in terms of our radical trade unionists. And, and, and for even for intellectuals, I mean, good God almighty, you know, uh, uh, I was just reading about uh, old brother Ray Ginger and his wife, Ann Fagan and, and Carol Weiss King. I mean, these were folk in the 40s who were wiped out by Harvard and other places because of the McCarthyism and they were fighting for folk who were on their way to jail. Carol Weiss King needs to be remembered as one of the great lawyers concerned with the vicious repressive apparatus of the nation state. Well, you look at her life and you see what's going on now with immigrants, you say, oh my God, there's continuity in terms of repression. Absolutely. But, but I do want to say this, though, in terms of what happens outside of our borders, that we have to be morally consistent in our defense of everyday people. When I take the case of Cuba, for example, I was just blessed to sign this, um, this statement to let Cuba live on behalf of, uh, of the calling for the lifting of the sanctions. The sanctions have been immoral. They're barbaric. They're vicious and so forth and so on. But at the same time, you see, if there were a, a letter that accented the Cuban government also being accountable to its people, so dissident voices that are being raised, being incarcerated and so forth. But that's authoritarian policies of the Cuban government. I would support that, too. And they would say, well, Brother West, how can you sign both of them? Because I'm trying to be consistent. The, the people themselves are suffering. The fundamental sources of the suffering have to do with imperial sanctions. It has to do with the ways in which the Cuban revolution had been circumscribed and so forth. But then the Cuban government itself must be made accountable. And therefore, the critiques must be made of any authoritarian policy vis-a-vis ordinary people inside of Cuba. I know when I went to Cuba in 1982, I lectured about 25 times. It must have been about the 22nd time. He said, Brother West, you sound like a counter-revolutionary. I said, well, what am I saying? Well, you said that people ought to have the right to raise their voices and be critical of Fidel. I said, yes, I believe elites ought to rotate. And I said that on television. The elites rotate. You call up for Castro to rotate? That's right. They need to rotate. Well, that sounds kind of revolutionary. I don't know what you call it, but all I'm saying is I've come here to defend the Cuban people. And to the degree to which I'm at a critique of U.S. imperialism, which has been vicious, they get patting me on the back. Oh, Brother West, we appreciate that. You tell us, well, I'm trying to tell the truth. And I had a critique of the Cuban government. Oh, they came at me tooth and nail. Same was true with the racism in Cuba. We solved the race, we've, we've solved the race problem. Get off the crack pipe. No, you haven't. But you've made some major moves. And let's work at it together. But the racism is still operating. So that you had to be honest and candid in such a way that you're not, you hope you're not just used by the right wing, because you got folk, you know, in Florida, the right wing, Cubans in Florida. Well, you know, West is on our side, at least on this part, but he's on the other side. Well, it's just a matter of trying to be consistent. I'm not trying to make sides in this regard. We love the Cuban people, period. How do you keep track of this stuff? Thank you for that. That was great. No, and Dr. West, I think you've been very generous with your time. I think before we let you go, you're you're you said you're heading off uh, to go campaign for Nina Turner. Um, if you 
had a message to deliver to our viewers about who Nina is, uh, what she's like, and, and why you support her, I think that'd be great. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, first I want to say that we must do all we can to keep alive the higher standards of moral, spiritual, and political excellence represented by Jacobin Magazine has to do with truth telling and justice seeking. It's very important. It really is. I mean, it's like trying to keep alive the best of the jazz tradition. You see, how you gonna keep that alive? Don't say a word about Charlie Parker. Don't say a word about Sarah Brown. Don't say a word about Louis Armstrong. Don't say a word about Mary Lou Williams. You got to keep the standards up, and that's exactly what you all are able to do in terms of the history. It can't just be contemporary events. Tell the whole genealogy of the ruling class of the American Empire now in its decadent moment. This Negro. <laughs> necrotic moment as he noted in that thing you see it's dying from the inside you got to tell a larger story so it is with our elected officials that we go to Cleveland we go to support Nina Turner why because she is a wave in a grand ocean of a black progressive tradition that goes hand in hand with the U.S. progressive tradition and the international progressive tradition. And she is this crucial p- person at this moment that's trying to hold up a bloodstained banner of truth-telling and justice-seeking that have to do with moral, spiritual, political standards of excellence. And that excellence is manifesting how deep is your love for everyday people. Do you look at the world through the lens of poor and working people? I don't care what color they are. I was just blessed to write the uh, 60th anniversary for uh, Franz Fanon's Regiment of the Earth. I got a chance to read it twice. It'll be out in a couple of months. And what is one of the fundamental points he makes there? The massive betrayal and pervasive neglect of poor and working people of national bourgeoisies in every corner of the world, including the United States, including Black America. Nina Nina Turner, I was going to say Nina Simone, because they really go hand in hand in terms of their spirit, (laughs) their vision, their courage, their style, their willingness to tell the truth, right, is concerned about that kind of betrayal and neglect of poor and working people on behalf of politicians, including black politicians, including black neoliberal politicians, like the one she's running against. That's why I go down to see Nina Turner in the spirit of Nina Simone. Love it. Dr. Cornell West, you're an absolute legend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, we hope you'll do it again soon. Salute both of y'all. Stay strong now. Thank you. There he is. Um, The man. That was awesome. Yeah. It's nice to, it's nice to listen to the interview. I'm glad that it was uh, pre-taped because I got to like, you know, I, I went, lay down on the couch and just actually listen to, to what he had to say without like stressing about what like our next questions are going to be. And it's a good experience. So um, that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the therapist voice of Dr. Cornell West in the back of your head on the couch. Like, yes, yeah. this is, th- these are the orders. This is what I need to be doing right yeah. now. 
When I told him after the interview, uh, after the tape uh, was rolling, I was like, uh, you know, you just you just make us look cool. You just yeah. make you just make it appealing on a on a purely, you know, kind of visceral level to be a part of the struggle, you know, because he's just so fucking cool. Yeah, we just for the, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we owe Cornell West a lot on the left, but I think that's probably the principal reason. Yeah, that, like. Not a lot he's of cool like, people on the left. Not a lot of cool he's, people. He's holding like fifty-one percent of it up right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's like he's like Atlas. He's Atlas holding like the entire cool ball of the left <laughs> on his shoulders. You know, um. <laughs> some one of our fans must be like a deviant art person. Someone make that image. Yeah, <laughs> Cornel West, West holding. holding <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I'm on screen because it's the end of the show and we do super chats. So yes. um, a couple of people sent in some super chats, so I'm going to get to those. But if you have any last minute pressing questions, send them in right now because we got to go in a little bit. But um, uh, and we are live, even if the interview wasn't. Um, but I wanted to, before we uh, get to a question, uh, Ratatouilleville sent some money in earlier. Mm. Thank you, Ratatouilleville. Thank you. Delicious. <laughs> Delicious. Thank you. Um, Carlos Reynosa writes, love you guys. Every week you continue to, continue to deliver quality content and you help me look forward to kicking back on my Saturday mornings with a cup of coffee and your amazing show. Keep it going. Thank you, Carlos. Love that. Right uh, after Saturday morning cartoons, you just watch Jacobin Weekends. Yeah. Do they even have that <laughs> anymore? love it. Do they have that anymore? <laughs> Well, we're trying to. I'm sure we're trying to up the budget for these things. So eventually, we right. will have like Saturday morning cartoons as part of the weekends block. Okay, so, great. You know, great. go to the Patreon, help us out, and uh, make the cartoons real. That's that's my pitch. Yeah. Um, okay, a couple questions. Actually, before I do that, uh, Cotton, thanks for the money. Thank you. Um, uh, Champagne Communista, good friend of the show, writes: In light of Cornell West's words, what are some of y'all's uh, sources of insight and inspiration. Oof. Um, uh, what do you What do you got, Anna? So these days, I'm a little more hesitant to have heroes. Um, you know, but I there are okay. So this is usually my go to move when I I need like clarity on something. There are people who have been around for a while who have been consistent in their messaging and their wisdom, I think is incredibly important. And so it's not that I defer to them, but I take their perspective a lot more seriously than randos on social media or YouTube or anywhere else. Right. Noam Chomsky, Richard Wolf, um, Cornell West. I mean, these are people who have a firm grasp of history who have been consistent who have proven themselves to be deep thinkers and have never led me, at least, uh, in the wrong direction in terms of helping me analyze what we're experiencing in the current moment. So those are the three names that come to mind right now. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll see like weird debates or whatever, where uh, one of them says something that doesn't go along with what some prominent content creator has to say. I, I don't I don't engage in any of that. Again, these are people who, these are the G's. Like, they just know what they're talking about. Yeah. So I, I go to them for uh, inspiration. And, like, I love I love Richard Wolf's podcast. I think his podcast is fantastic because what he does is he makes 
um, socialism and, and, and theory accessible to everyone. Mm. And so you don't have to be like some well-read political theorist or anything like that. Like you just understand and he, he just makes it easy to digest. And he gives examples from around the world of how socialism works, how co-ops work. And I love it. So that's where I find a lot of inspiration and also more importantly, clarity. Yeah. I mean, anyone, anyone who remembers the pre-neoliberal era, like who was an adult before neoliberalism, like I always find, um, I always find that they bring a, a different kind of perspective because they remember a different world. You know, we've we've all grown up in this. We're all like fish in water. We don't know anything. It's hard to imagine a different world if you don't know a different world, if you haven't experienced a different world. You know, they remember. I mean, like Chomsky talks about all the time what political life, uh, working class political life was in the 1930s, which he remembers, you know, um, which is a completely different uh, political culture than the one we, we live in now. Um, and it's like, it's, I find it interesting to hear him, uh, talk about that stuff because, um, again, for us, anyone born, you know, after 1970, essentially, you, you just, all you know is this, all you know is this kind of, uh, the, the, the long march of, uh, the, the sort of furious, uh, reaction of capital, um, with no, f- uh, ability to fight back, uh, no, you know, just like victory after victory after victory for capital. Like that's all we know. It's hard to imagine uh, a different world you know like there's uh i remember when adam curtis went on went on chapo he like asked them, "Is like do you really want change though you know and they were all like you know like they, mm-hmm. they think they do you know we think we do but it's like do you really want it like change you know um you haven't witnessed it you've never understood you don't know what that is you know um so i always find um uh listening to people who remember a, a completely different um political life, political culture, um, economic life, uh, just in, interesting to, to listen to. I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, particular Adam Curtis interview because I remember that and it was like the most perfect, like... In oh, some, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I right. was like, do I really want change? Like, okay, so if someone had told that to us today, it'd be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But like the moment that he said that in coming out of the 2016 yeah. election and like before you know, the kind of the in-between Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020. And um, it was like, yeah, same. It just, it hit me so hard of like, oh my God, this is, this is what's at stake. And, uh, and, and the way he said it, that, you know, there's millions of people across the world that want change and, uh, and change is going to happen. And it's like Nando's saying, it's hard to conceive of at times because, so much of how we understand life and society, like in the neoliberal era, is that society doesn't change, that society is inflexible. The only thing that changes is our reactions to society. And yeah. and there's like, you know, and when people yeah, promote... Politics can't change anything, yeah. you know, that as much as we pour into it, that politics can't change anything. Like that was really what happened is they, they just kind of removed politics from the equation. Yeah. Um, you know, like the fucking Fed decides what, you know, like what the economy does. You know right. what I mean? Like we don't have any say right. over it. Right. You know, like, I mean, that's a that's a reductive example but of what I'm talking about. But that's basically what it is. And like we pour all this energy into it. We, you know, but but very little. There are very few political avenues to 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 affect change. Um, and that is uh, that's just kind of a that's a strange place to be in. Mm-hmm. Um just you know it reminds me of um 
uh, Adolf Reed and Mark Dudzik's description of neoliberalism, which is it's uh, the period of time where of capitalism where there's no working class opposition. Like that's, None. I mean, it's it's highly simplified, but that's basically it. Like that's why there's no we don't see change like in a in a progressive way, like to the betterment of working people's lives at the level of society. Like and everything just redounds to well, you just have to deal with it better. Like, you know, figure out how to yeah. manage yourself better and your thoughts and your self-care. Feelings. Yeah. And, you know, just going back to um, Champagne Communista's question, I know I bring her up a lot and I, it's just, she has a, a pretty big impact on me and the way that I've like seen um, or like the way that I kind of analyze uh, systems and it's, it's Barbara Ehrenreich, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because she, what was the last thing you said? I just lost my train of thought, Kale. My bad. Um, she's an OG. I mean, just the like. She is an OG. Yeah. No, that you. That you it's just, just you can't change anything. You can only like manage it better. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 like she's just so good at fighting back against that narrative and making it abundantly clear that no, that myth of personal responsibility is bullshit, and don't buy into it. Yeah. Because like, there was a there was this video. Um, it was produced by a more perfect union, I think, and it, it featured a worker from Topeka, Kansas, uh, the Lay's factory there. Hmm. And uh, man, that video hit me like I it, it haunts me. It haunts me. There's like a point in the video where the worker who had been electrocuted on the job and permanently disabled talks about taking money from his child's piggy bank to be able to pay for medical bills and stuff. Hmm. And he just starts like sobbing. He's just and and the reason why it haunts me is because you can see how that myth of personal responsibility leads to like self-loathing, yeah. right? Making you feel like you're not good enough. That's why I love Barbara Ehrenreich because she pushes back against that so well. And I highly recommend reading her work. Like she does it really well in Brightside specifically. Yeah. So just my last thought for the question, because um, I would second almost everything that's already been said uh, as far as insights, of like the names mentioned. Almost everything. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm like... I I would second every okay (laughs) all the people listed they're great and I also like them like and and Nando's Nando's point of like the people that like come from like a different era of the left that have like maintained their integrity over time uh have been so vital so people like Aaron Reich people like Adolf Reed um you know uh the Vec Chipper has been an important mentor for me um you know although they don't fit this description like Chapa was really important for me uh, coming to the left, uh, especially Amber, um, you know, but I think for like the second part of it of like, where, where do we like, uh, inspiration, I guess, like, how do we, I take that kind of like, how do you keep going? Like, how do you, despite the enormous, you know, the, just the wall of opposition to our worldview and and our politics, um, I found most of my inspiration, honestly, through friends that also organize that it's, like seeing friends that are involved in Medicare for all campaigns and things like that, where I realized like, Oh no, we actually, we can actually struggle for something better and we might not always win, but like there is something worth fighting for. And when you're in campaigns and you end up meeting ordinary people who like see having those moments when people realize like, Oh, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy for thinking that this world is fucked up and could be a lot better that like, it doesn't have to all redound to, you know, me changing my opinion or my attitude or my behavior on something. It could actually be changed at the level of society. 
seeing someone realize that is is honestly like where I probably gotten the most inspiration. Um, like I, when I've like canvassed for Bernie, I felt like I was like an evangelical or something like just like all of a sudden, like I have a purpose. I'm speaking the, the, the word of God. <laughs> like, and it's, it's like, you know, when you're in campaign mode, it's different than when you're, you know, like trying to get the theory right or, or understand the history or whatever. But, you know, but I think what, what it is, is it's like actually making those real connections with people and seeing them like respond and say, oh, wait, actually, no, we can collectively have a better world. Um, I think those have been the moments that have touched me the most. And, um, and again, and, you know, when I'm not doing that, it's, it's like friends who, who also do this kind of work. And, um, you know, just knowing that you're not alone in your principles, knowing that other people also realize it's so fucked up that, you know, healthcare is private in this country that, you know, people don't have a living wage, like, people like having that acknowledgement is, is inspiration. And then, you know, um, and then you turned all these people we mentioned to, you know, to get the, the, the analysis, right. Look at Chomsky, Adolf Reed, Vivek, um, Boscar, Amber, others, um, Dr. West, uh, hmm. uh, like, subscribe, share the video. Um, uh, okay. Last few couple few, cause we got some right at the end and I don't want to, um, uh, ignore them. Uh, Klektik had, had asked us, or they, he, he or she first said, I always find Dr. West to be so inspiring, but at the same time, it's so frustrating the media won't have him on and Harvard won't ever, uh, or won't even give him tenure, which is preposterous. How can we help amplify his and other voices? Uh, hit like, subscribe, and share. Yeah, hit like, subscribe, and share. Uh, rate, uh, share with your friends. The You know, I mean... Uh, Dr. West is one of the few who actually does every once in a while get on like cable news or whatever. Like he, he, you know, he, he, he is able to, to, to get on CNN every once in a while. And it like always goes viral. Like everyone's like, Oh my God, like, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and then like, wait, 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 no, no, no. What happened? You know, <laughs> like you gotta, gotta yeah. shut this down. Um, <laughs> but, um, who let this man on our yeah, airways? Who, what happened there? Um, but, uh, but I mean, it's just, it's a structural thing. It's not, you know, it's, yeah, there might be like some individual producer at CNN who like, you know, uh, sneaks him in uh, every once in a while. But the structures of profit, for-profit media make it so that people who are anti-capitalist will not make it on air. That's just, that's just, yeah. that's, that's always going to be the case. Always. Yeah, I... Believe it or not, CNN does not, and, and cable news overall, I mean, with the exception of maybe Fox, like they don't have the kind of influence that I think people think they have. Um, well, when Cornell West goes on, you're right. Like his segments tend to go viral, but most people aren't watching CNN. Like I think like on any given day or night, like it barely pierces a million live viewers, right? And they don't, they don't put most of their content up online for like video on demand. So I say that as don't be too hyper-focused on the traditional outlets that, you know, pretend like people like Cornell West don't exist. Um, but I, I think going back to what Kale was saying earlier about organizing and all of that, and, and I mean, Cornell West was sharing the same message. I think that's just far more effective than 
more media. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of these shows on YouTube actually get more viewership per video than like any broadcast of a CNN show is going to get. So, you know, it's good to keep building up that media infrastructure, but that's such a small, in my opinion, a small percentage of, of what the left needs to be focused on. I think like the organizing is far more important, especially on a local level where you have more of an opportunity for change in your immediate environment, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I go back and forth on that and and like all the time, I really do. Like I, I, I go from thinking that all of the, you know, the media, the New York times and, and CNN and MSNBC are just completely irrelevant given their tiny audiences relative to the larger population. But the, the, but on the other hand, in something like, for example, the Democratic primary, um, which is a which is part the participants uh, in that are a relatively small percentage of the population, um, but have a huge outsized influence on the, you know, overall uh, trajectory of of political life in America. The media does have a huge effect on those people, um, and I mean, I think we saw that with the, the, just the just the, the the ease with which they dispatched of Bernie, you know, once the once the media coalesced around uh, and everything coalesced around Biden, it was just like, oh, bing, you know, like, uh, see ya. And um, I, I do think that that while they're not like on any given night, a huge amount of people viewing it at any given moment, the kind of ripple effects um, that stem from that um, are can be quite significant. Um and and have a and have a pretty big effect. And so I, I but again, I'll, at the same time, then I and I think it ebbs and flows. Like I think it, they have an effect on yeah. like around you know election time, and people are like, oh my god, I got to tune into the show of uh, that is that this thing. And like right now, like you see when there are no elections going on, and it just you see like the media, uh, the the sort of ratings on, on all the cable news uh, channels have like collapsed, like absolutely collapsed. Totally. Um, yeah. The thing that other people don't realize is that their business model doesn't depend on ratings, but that's a whole other thing that they don't care really about the ratings, but that's a whole other thing. Yep. But, um, yep. um, you're right. You're right. And, and, and you're, you're correct in saying it ebbs and flows. And, and I think what Bernie tried to do with his campaign was kind of like bypass what I think he knew what was going to happen with cable news and all of that by, focusing on because the people who are like watching cable news and just like eating it up during the each election cycle those are people who are going to go out there and vote right like those are people who tend to get to the ballots uh ballot box and and cast a ballot but bernie was all about activating the largest portion of the electorate which is non-voters and um you know it didn't it didn't work this time around, but I do think that that was the right strategy, right? Reaching out to these voters who don't believe that the government is ever going to do anything to improve their lives, sitting down with them and, and communicating with them. No, I I'm different. You know, here's what I want to do. Here's what I'm going to fight for. Right. And not only do just half the country not vote, but the vast majority, way more than, than that other percentage, way more people don't watch the news. Like most people in America don't watch the news. And when you do look at the ratings and you do look at the numbers, like the amount of people. Well, they don't watch cable it. news, but a lot of people watch local news. Right. A yes, lot more people watch TV. A lot more people watch grim. TV in general than we than we realize because we're young, cool uh, millennials. Um, but like, you know, the amount of people that watch TV news is, is far outstrips the amount of people that consume their news online. OK, well, you know? my my point is just that 
<laughs> that wasn't my point. <laughs> You're just admitting that I'm correct. Yeah. Know, thanks, Kale. Yeah. Nando's correct. Um, but my point is just that uh, most like working people don't, you know, they're not stuck in the situation they're in because the news told them, you know, you don't deserve anything. Like they already know, like their situation's fucked. Most working class people know, like they're in impossible like circumstances with really bad options available. Like that's where I think Anna was right uh, a moment ago when she was saying that, you know, it's important to get, you know, if we do media, it's important to have the media, but like uh, you fundamentally need to be able to have conversations with people and, and organize them. Um, and that's like, in some ways, like we, we got the left media down, like we're going to keep doing this. You'll see more of us. Hopefully more people will see more of us, but like the, the most fundamental thing now post Bernie is we have to like expand our organizational capacity on the left tenfold that, you know, the amount of, you know, whether it's in campaign work or electoral work or, or whatever, our ability to actually uh, really have real conversations and relationships with ordinary working people and, and build trust with them. So they say, actually, I'm willing to, you know, to be in that precarious situation where I'm taking on uh, the boss or um, that corporation or um, that politician or whatever, uh, because these people, all those things have way more power than any ordinary working class person. And so you necessarily need common collective action in order to fight back. And so that's where, um, this wasn't at all what the question was, but like, this is like, we're, we're gonna keep putting Cornell West out there. Um, and then what you should do is take the message that Cornell West provides and say, how can I then contribute uh, to building the left and, and organizing, uh, whether it's your coworkers, your friends, um, and ideally not your friends, people who you don't already know that, um, you should be building new relationships, uh, with other working people and, and building trust. Yeah. So just like every time you match with someone on Tinder, try, try, uh, you know, radicalizing them. That's yeah. what you got to do. Like That's the, what organization second means. Second question, not, not the first one. Don't be, don't be like yeah. a nerd or anything. Yeah, don't be a nerd, but radicalizing. What are you doing? Yeah. You know? Come on. Um, Do wait, people last... still use Tinder? Or is there, is there like a new one that I don't know about? There pe- I think people still use Tinder. There's like... Okay, okay, okay. Uh, okay. It's out there. Okay, cool. Um, okay, last two Super Chats. Uh, LJ writes, uh, he, he sent us some money for Weekend's Cartoons, The Mechanical Bull, and The G's. Thank you. Um I believe uh, Nando's working on the mechanical bowl and we will provide updates yeah. soon on that. Yes. Um, and then finally, uh, text Dan sent us uh, some money earlier and said, love the show. I do miss the salt segments. We'll, we'll get salty mm. again soon. We're, I mean, yeah. we're always salty. We will we, I don't know. We get, we're like, we're, <laughs> I don't know if you be careful what you guys are asking for. I don't know if you want that. <laughs> <laughs> next time next time pelosi i mean actually pelosi's constantly just bumbling through shit so uh we'll we owe you a, a nice like jab at pelosi soon we'll we'll, we'll figure yeah. that out she deserves yeah. it we all deserve it no i don't think i deserve it only you guys <laughs> <laughs> all right it's saturday it's twelve thirty. kale it's three thirty where you're at. Yeah, my yeah. my day is almost done. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys should enjoy your weekend, uh, and we will too. We're gonna say bye. Have a good weekend. Hit like, hit subscribe, share, and all the rest.
Okay. Thank you, Kale. Okay. Later, Kale. <laughs> the awkward moment where we do a double show close where Kale says double bye show close. and then we yeah. say right, yeah, we right? Say a, we just the official bye. We like to give you we like to give you guys bang for your buck, okay? Even though this is a free show. Um by giving you two <laughs> goodbyes instead of one. That's All right. right. Well, anyway, as always, we love you guys. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for your super chats. Thanks for liking and sharing. And if you haven't subscribed to Jacobin's wonderful magazine already, please do so. I just got my latest edition in the mail, and every time it happens, it's like Christmas. It's like waking up. Christ- I didn't get Christmas mine. Day. I'm like really jealous. I haven't gotten mine. I gotta, I gotta phone up uh, Premier Bosker and see what the hell's going on because I haven't gotten mine yet. We have to see what the hell is going on. All right. Uh, so thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nando, and have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. 